1: Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. He's
2: living a nightmare, they telling his dream. Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes in our kings. And they wonder why we never believe. And they wonder why we never believe. Nigga, we poor. Young niggas warned about that corner store, but the chinks on that. And you claiming that's your block, who you think on that. Quick sand in the hood and we gonna sink on that. You should think on that. Poison water out and flint. They let them little babies drink on that. They don't care about us. They don't really care about it.
3: When Trump talks about changing libel laws, we usually frame the conversation around him wanting to sue media companies. But there is another side to libel lawsuits that involves corporations actually suing individuals for defamation. The 20th century saw many changes to how the First Amendment was interpreted in this respect, including a sharp rise in the number of lawsuits filed by large companies against individual activists. In 2016, one such lawsuit was filed by a national waste management company called Green Group Holdings. They own Arrowhead Landfill in Uniontown, Alabama, and brought a $30 million defamation suit against a group of activists called Black Belt Citizens Fighting for Health and Justice. Ian McDougall, a Harper's Magazine contributor, senior reporting fellow at ProPublica, and also a lawyer, has published an investigative piece looking at this particular case in the newest issue of Harper's Magazine. His story is called Empty Suits, Defamation Law, and the price of dissent. It takes a close look not only at how one community has was impacted by this type of lawsuit, but also at the history of these suits and the presence of racial discrimination in waste disposal practices in the U.S. I am very pleased it brings Ian to our show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, to begin, is there a name for lawsuits like this that are filed by large
4: corporations against individuals? There is. It's uh, uh, Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation, or um, SLAPS. The law loves acronyms, of course. Yes.
3: And when do people start to notice this tactic of silencing activists via lawsuits?
4: It really began with a guy named uh, uh, Rock Pring, who at the time was uh, uh, an environmental lawyer. Um, He had noticed that a lot of his clients were getting sued by the um, corporations and and similar entities that they protested against. A few years later, he became a University of Denver law professor. And he Mm -hmm. and a a sociologist, uh, Penelope Cannon, uh, got interested in this idea. Uh, uh, Penelope Cannon had actually been the uh, defendant in one of these lawsuits when she was in Hawaii. Um, And so they began to uh, really dig into and compile examples of these lawsuits and try to understand uh, what they were. And they also coined the name, I should say.
3: Hmm. Your article includes a brief history of defamation lawsuits. Where did the idea of
4: defamation originate and how is it adopted in the First Amendment? Defamation is a, a very old idea. Um, it's it's uh, goes back to I mean, well before uh, England, but sort of our version of defamation really begins in in in, uh, in Britain. The sort of idea of of uh, false speech that would would uh, harm a person's reputation. It really began with concerns about harming uh, the crown's reputation and so on. Um, and uh, and so the way then it evolved in mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, and uh, the First Amendment really sort of didn't become much of a, a thing until the uh, the 20th century after World War One. Right. Um, there was this, the sort of propaganda machinery that the U.S. Uh, put in place to to promote its its um, its views, and then also the sort of uh, uh, the Sedition Act and the the um, Espionage Act, which were used to prosecute people like Eugene Debs who spoke out against the right. war. Judges were disturbed by that and saw in the First Amendment's speech clause a way to um, essentially sort of uh, uh, prevent the government and government entities from, from uh, uh, preventing people from saying what they want. And so uh, over time, by the time we get to the 1960s, um, uh, that reaches the law of defamation. There's a, a guy named L.B. Sullivan, who was uh, the uh, police commissioner in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, uh, a group of pastors and civil rights activists had uh, had placed an ad in the New York Times uh, basically decrying uh, police abuse mm-hmm. of African-Americans in Alabama and uh, defending Martin Luther King, who was then being prosecuted on these sort of spurious uh, perjury charges. Sullivan said that that uh, attacked mm-hmm. his reputation, that the statements were false. Uh, and the Supreme Court, when it ultimately reached it, said, you know, even though there are some inaccuracies in this um, in this ad, uh, the truth is that when uh, you have sort of Heated speech, or or this kind of speech that you get from people like activists, mm-hmm. so you can't expect you know a, a perfect actu- perfect accuracy. So you have to have something more than that. What they called actual malice, which mm-hmm. is essentially that you lied or that you had really serious reasons to doubt what um, what you were saying was true.
3: Mm-hmm. And that 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 point about uh, intentional malice—that's what much of this hangs on, right? That sort of is the, the framework for the law. So let's let's zero in on uh, the case that you. Uh, Focusing on in the in the in the story, uh, where is start by telling us where is Uniontown, Alabama?
4: It's uh, in a part of sort of South Central Alabama called the Black Belt, um, which although it's taken on uh, racial connotations, actually originally um, referred to the sort of dark, uh, uh, very sort of fertile soils there that um, uh, ultimately drew uh, coastal cotton planters. Um, hmm. It's. Uh, also, really, so in this, the, the region that is sort of the heart of the civil rights movement is about 30 miles west of Selma. Right. Um, uh, and sort of this very sort of flat, uh, fertile land. So describe the
3: pervasive stench that
4: kicked <laughs> off the local residents' concern what, what, and what caused it. The cause is a, a subject of some yes. debate and conversation in, in Uniontown. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's so many possible um, uh, sources of it. The, the smell is sort of as you approach town. Uh, I was typically coming from the east, from Selma, where I was staying. Uh, if you have the windows down, you suddenly get this kind of like, smells like initially like farmland or something like mm-hmm. that. But as you get closer, it smells like, um, like if somebody had sort of left a, a, a hamper with sweaty gym clothes in a wow. of a hot room for days on end. Yeah. Um, and it depends on, on the weather and so on how how strong it is, but it's really an overpowering smell and, and pervades the town. The sort of various potential sources of it include um, the waste uh, disposal system there, which is uh, this sort of open sewage Treatment ponds that then get uh, s- uh, transmitted to the spray field, where they spray the water over um, over what's basically farmland. I mean, at times in some of the state uh, inspection inspection reports, there you'll you'll see they'll talk about watching the water just hit cows as they're you know grazing. Um, there's also this cheese plant there that that has its own spray field where it sprays its way, mm-hmm. um, and you just see these ponds of, of wastewater sort of sitting on this farmland, right? I mean, very near like the local high school, for example. Um, and then uh, some folks point to the, the landfill, too. Um,
3: I'm D.W. Gibson, and I'm speaking with Ian McDougall about his story in Harper's Magazine, Empty Suits, Defamation Law, and the Price of Dissent. Uh, talk to us about coal ash. What is it, and uh, when did it start getting dumped in Uniontown?
4: Coal ash is um, a waste product of burning coal at, at power plants, typically. Um, It is stored usually next to uh, the power plant in uh, these ponds, and then it settles out and is is dried and disposed of. Um, There's a uh, Tennessee Valley Authority power plant in Kingston, uh, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. uh, where one of these, um, there was sort of a levee um, uh, holding in uh, the water with the coal ash in one of these ponds. It breached and it spread uh, coal ash or spilled coal ash into the local watershed. the problem then, of course, you've got to clean it up because uh, it's uh, a huge sort of environmental disaster. Coal ash contains arsenic and, and other sort of heavy metals that can be um, carcinogenic, but also you know, kill uh, uh, you know, fish and other things like that when they're spilled into, into creeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question was, what, what to do with this? Uh, There's 4 million tons of it, uh, more than that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, ultimately, the TVA and the EPA settled on, um, on Arrowhead Landfill, which was at that time a fairly new, um, new landfill um, one of the largest and um, uh, uh, potentially most active in, in Alabama. Um, it can accept waste from 33 states and so on, although it's actually accepted waste from quite a f- number uh, less than that. But they uh, essentially just started this year-and-a-half-long process of trucking or um, originally taking by train, um, uh, you know, just uh, these 4 million tons of coal ash. It was, you know, basically night and day for um, a year-and-a-half, these... Mm-hmm. Uh, trains just went from Tennessee down to Uniontown, and then um, they carted the coal ash down to the uh, disposal site um, mm-hmm. on the south end of the landfill.
3: And so, and there's a, you describe a very stark difference in the demographics between Uniontown and the area in
4: Tennessee where the coal ash is coming from. That's right, yeah. Um, Rowan County, Tennessee, um, where the power plant is located, is 90% white. Um, Uniontown is about the same percentage of uh, black. Um, mm-hmm. And so the that sort of uh, uh, led a lot of folks to feel that there was a, a racial or sort of environmental injustice uh, aspect to this, where you're sort of taking, you know, the the sort of white Rowan County gets the benefit of all these jobs from this power plant and everything, and, and uh, when something goes wrong, um, the sort of the, 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 the fruits of that get shipped to a, a black community. Yeah.
3: You describe how Esther Calhoun, the president of uh, the group I mentioned, of Black Belt Citizens Fighting for Health and Justice, had been watching Uniontown uh, petrify for two decades uh, can you describe the economic decline that the town has experienced?
4: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been a long running decline. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there was a time when um, there was uh, a sort of much more active sort of farm community and so on. Although that also was very inequitable. uh, Essers, hmm. uh you know, uh, sharecroppers. Parrots. Yeah, they're yeah. sharecroppers. I mean, there were tenants on on uh, uh, you know, white owned farms, uh, various ones in the area. Um, but since really sort of the the middle of the twentieth century, there's been this sort of this gradual. Uh, decline in you know the sort of economies down there um, and without sort of much of a uh, a, a tax base <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. i mean they have had had to find sort of various ways to make money, including sometimes taking waste from or wastewater to into their sort of very um, rudimentary sewage system from uh, from a local prison from uh, from other sort of from various industries in the areas catfish processing plant and that's kind of you know it's overwhelmed the um, the uh sewage system there and uh that's uh, uh really caused a lot of the problems and, and the smell there's um the uh, the uh, if you <laughs> the environmental uh agency in Alabama adem last year issued this very bizarre Order where they essentially said Uniontown's sewage system is out of compliance, but what are we going to do about it? We can't. Oh, well. Wow. We can't say they they can't have sewage. Um, so this is a very sort of fraught thing.
3: Wow, so how is a black belt citizens fighting for health and justice founded, and what are their two main object, uh, objections to the landfill?
4: They were they were originally founded um, actually very near the landfill um, at this sort of uh, social club uh, down there um, by some folks who lived in the area and were concerned about. Um, the sort of the smells uh, you know there were uh, uh, there's a, a woman named Della uh, Dial who was um, a friend of Esther's who you know couldn't sit outside anymore and, and uh, quite elderly uh, since passed away uh, rats hmm. were coming into her trailer so they decided they wanted to do something about um, about the sort of the uh, smells and sound, but also at the time they were, they were um, beginning to bring in the coal ash and there's a lot of dust kicked up and, and um, it was just like not a very healthy uh, place to be so um they uh uh began this group a uh, very sort of loosely organized grassroots activist group and they there were two concerns really one was um the sort of the uh fear that um the uh, coal ash um was uh leaching into creeks and into mm-hmm. runoff and so on and and uh you know killing flora and fauna and potentially harming uh, humans as well uh and and their second concern really was the the what they saw as the racial injustice component mm-hmm. so one of aspect of that was that this was coal ash from a, a white community being brought into a black community uh, to be disposed of. The second aspect of it was it was built um, the, the active waste site is right next to this uh, country cemetery, the black country cemetery that's been in use for decades um, it's it's no longer actively in use but, but they felt that um, uh, they were concerned that some of the landfills workers had been going in there to put in gas monitors and had been damaging Graves, the, uh, uh, the company uh, fervently denies that that happened. But. So
3: what tactics did uh, black belt citizens use to convey their dissent?
4: Sort of the classic uh, gamut of, of grassroots activist groups, um, anything from, uh, you know, the occasional sort of protests with handwritten signs to writing letters to um, state regulators um, to, to meeting with the landfill and, and uh, uh, managers and trying to talk, uh, talk about the problems. Um, and then uh, to the sort of uh, uh, more recent development, I guess, in activism, which is the use of social media to broadcast their message, um, and not just locally and statewide, but beyond that, to try to get attention to the problems they see in their community.
3: And hasn't the federal government also taken issue with the in, uh, inequity of offloading coal, uh, ash, in Uniontown?
4: Yeah, well, in a way, and in, in, in uh, two different agencies in two different directions. The uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights uh, in 2016, I believe, issued a report um, basically saying that federal regulators, when they decided to to bring the coal ash uh, deposit in Uniontown, uh, had failed to consider the the uh, sort of disparate racial impacts that that would have. Uh, just last week, the EPA, which um, uh, members of Black Belt Citizens and others had filed a, what they call a Title VI complaint, which is a civil rights complaint to the EPA, saying the state regulator, ADEM, had been uh, uh, taking actions that had disparate racial impacts, uh, and that was in two thousand and thirteen, mm-hmm. um, as the Office of Civil Rights at EPA is famous for. It took forever um, mm-hmm. for them to uh, actually investigate um, and then last uh, last week, they sent a letter to the lawyers for for all these folks saying sorry there 's not enough uh, evidence for us to to find that there is um, uh, discrimination going on here
3: well wow. so prior to fol- filing the lawsuit against the individuals of the uh, black belt uh, citizens. What other steps did Green Group take to engage them before going to uh, a SLAP?
4: Yeah, the, um, Green Group, uh, you know, uh, to their credit, they tried to meet with folks in the community and, and held regular meetings. They, um, you know, tried to, to I think, um, get information to the community saying, look, we know there's concerns about the sort of health and environmental consequences of this landfill, but here are the steps we're taking to to make... The coal ash and the garbage we have here uh, uh, stored safely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they also engage with the community in other ways. They, they you know, uh, supported a festival. They, they provided school supplies to school children. Uh, you can't say they didn't, they didn't do anything, certainly.
3: Right. So what role do you see social media having played in the escalation from having these meetings with local residents to the extreme demands that the corporation made
4: prior to filing the suit? I mean, yeah, I think social media is really at the heart of all of this and, and the heart of the sort of uh, uh, increased risk activists face from uh, being sued by their targets, essentially. Uh, black Belt citizens had been posting uh, statements on their Facebook page and their website, um, but principally the Facebook page, uh, decrying their concerns or de- decrying the sort of what they call desecration of uh, this uh, country cemetery and then also raising concerns about runoff and, and, and arsenic and so on. Of course, in the manner of uh, Facebook, those were shared and mm-hmm. uh, uh, at times shared by state and national environmental organizations uh, so the the message went quite broadly that ultimately reached some of the um, uh, folks in the industry that Green Group Holdings operates in, and uh, I think that 's what really raised uh, uh, a lot of the concerns for them
5: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. so who specifically did Green Group Holdings end up suing?
4: They sued uh, four members of. Uh, well, for folks who are involved in Black Belt Citizens. One is Esther Calhoun, who you had mentioned. The other is Ben Eaton, who is the vice president. Um, And the other two are uh, these two uh, sisters. They call them the sisters often, uh, Mary Schaefer and Ellis Long, who are uh, unusual in the group. They're they're two um, uh, uh, 70-something-year-old white women who Mm -hmm. uh, grew up in in what Esther called the sort of uh, plantation side of Mm -hmm. of Uniontown uh, from a family that's been there since the 1840s. but uh, are committed activists in town, so those are the four that were sued.
3: So, do you have any sense of how the green group settled on the figure of thirty million dollars in the defamation lawsuit? That's quite a quite 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 a price tag there.
4: Yeah, there were uh, so there are sort of two uh, species or flavors of defamation. One is libel, which is written. The other is slander, which is spoken. It's essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, as I recall, it there were sort of two. Uh, two components of it some of them had to do with with uh things that black belt citizens members had said and then were then reposted on facebook each of those were 50 million f- uh, 15 million hmm. how they reached those numbers you mm-hmm. know uh, search me it's uh, uh i think that's often the case with lawsuits they're going to pick a number and
3: yeah so who ended up representing black belt citizens protesters and how did that come about
4: sure so uh in uh Uh, Filing their EPA complaint, um, uh, the members of Black Belt Citizens had worked with Earth Justice, which is a sort of law firm that does environmental work. They uh, call themselves an organization that does environmental work. Um, Those folks had then put them in touch with uh, attorneys at the ACLU and and some pro bono attorneys working with them. So they ultimately had uh, what is uh, quite unusual in these kinds of cases, uh, an eight-person legal team from the ACLU representing them, which is uh, a formidable thing, certainly.
3: And that's what makes this story stand out. I mean, it really sort of turns on that fact, I think, because it's those resources that, that empowered them to fight back, which is not
4: often the case. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. I mean, they, you know, they're represented by, uh, by Lee Rowland, was the ACLU attorney leading the fight and sort of among the you know, best First Amendment lawyers in the country. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, that just sort of makes all the difference, I think. Uh, there are a lot of other cases where, um, for example, there was a case in, in North Carolina a few years ago. Protest against this uh, cement plant they're proposing to put in near these um, high school, the high school there. This on, is on Cape Fear in, in uh, North Carolina, uh, and you know they had the, the folks who were sued, these activists had um, they had local lawyers who were not bad lawyers, but ultimately um, the lawyers said, you know, we can only do this pro bono for so long. Uh, a settlement offer uh, that didn't involve money
5: mm-hmm. uh,
4: being paid to the plaintiff, the cement plant company. Uh, uh, was accepted. But in the settlement agreement, there's a a, a gag provision, a confidentiality uh, uh, clause. And when later one of those activists tried to speak to a local paper, I believe it was, the cement uh, plant company came back and said, well, we're going to, you know, you you can't do that. This is, you know, the settlement was confidential. We're going to sue you. So I actually spoke to, tried to speak to her, to to, um, uh, uh, that activist uh, but the person who called me back was her husband, who's mm-hmm. not bound by the confidentiality clause uh-huh. and spoke to me at some length like about it. But, And he said that they remain in great fear, both of being sued for saying things uh, uh, by that company again, um, but also for saying anything about the case, given the confidentiality clause. So that's an example of where they had lawyers, and they were, I'm sure they were good lawyers, but um, that – Uh, really hamstrings them from speaking going forward.
3: It's tremendous to see such big corporations uh, devoting uh, resources to monitoring uh, local citizens speaking with local newspapers. Uh, One line in your story really stood out to me. You wrote, The lawsuit had taken on a taboo quality in Uniontown. Residents were so afraid that they didn't want to use the word lawsuit, not out loud. Uh, it, if they spoke about the case, if they did so at all, it was in whispers and coded language. It or the thirty million dollars, as if speaking about it directly might get them sued too. That sounds like a significant burden for everyone to be carrying. How did the lawsuit impact the town at large?
4: Yeah, I think uh, you know a lot of folks were were scared. I mean, people don't who aren't lawyers don't understand how um, these things work, how lawsuits work, and. And I think to the extent there was, you know, uh, appetite to be a part of black belt citizens' uh, uh, protests and so on, um, there was a real chilling effect um, on that, uh, including uh, what you just described, sort of saying anything about it. Ben Eaton, the vice president, uh, described the anecdote to me where he said, you know, he was at a sort of a local meeting place, this diner, and someone came up to him and said, you know, is it is it true? And he said, mm-hmm. is, is what true? He said, you know, is it true? Is it true? And he was like, what, what are you talking about? And the guy whispered to him finally like, Thirty million. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, it's true." But like, you know, if you if you're that scared to talk about a lawsuit, mm-hmm. you know, think about how you you feel about speaking out against uh, a, a landfill company. That
3: yeah. Yeah, well, it just shows a trickle down effect to that sort of idea of corporations monitoring, you know, your conversations with local reporters and that kind of thing.
4: Yeah, and, and you don't, you, you know, if you're in that position of the person talking to Ben, you don't know. You yeah. know, it's, and, uh, and you just, you know, you know, there's this really uh, big company that has this landfill and presence in town, and you don't know who's, you know, there's sort of, the way it was described to me in towns, there were folks who you know obviously worked at the landfill or worked with the company and, and there was always this, uh, I think, fear of being spied on in some ways mm. or not knowing who you could trust necessarily and who was in with the, the landfill or, or not. What a thing to feel in your hometown.
3: Did the fight against the landfill continue after the lawsuit was filed?
4: It did. Uh, they, you know, uh, the, the Black Belt citizens, the folks, uh, Esther Calhoun and, and Ben Eaton and the rest of them, they're really um, they're committed and they believe in what they're doing. But it, uh, you know, attendance at meetings dropped off a bit. People were scared to speak out. Um, and even uh, the members of the group themselves were very, uh, they described me as being sort of much more cautious about how they said things. Um, opinion is generally protected from libel. And, and they sort of were confused or confounded by why they now, you know, I think their lawyers may have told them this. I'm not sure. It said, you know, they had to say, I think this or I feel this as opposed to, you know, mm. this is what I understand to be true. Uh, and I think that was, you know, uh, I remember Astor just ex- express, expressing this sort of uh, just frustration with that. Like suddenly why do I have to speak a different way? What's wrong with how I was speaking before? Almost sounds like a good therapy session. <laughs> the first thing we're going to do to I think stop
5: racism is stop focusing on racism. Stop
6: focusing on racism.
5: It's not racism.
6: A man
7: accused of opening fire inside of an Olathe bar and killing a man because of his race changed his plea today and has now pleaded guilty.
8: 41 Action News reporter Lisa Benson live now with the details. Lisa.
7: Well, Adam Puritan will spend the rest of his life in prison. Now, people on both sides of this case have agreed that he will serve the maximum sentence on all of the counts that he's now pled guilty to. Please rise. There were no empty seats in the courtroom for Adam Puritan's plea hearing.
9: This plea agreement is typed out in writing and you have signed it. Is that correct? Thank yes, you,
10: Your
7: Honor. Puritan pled guilty to one count of premeditated first-degree murder and two counts of attempted premeditated first-degree murder. The 52-year-old opened fire inside of Austin's Bar and Grill in Olathe after confronting two Indian men about their immigration status last year. Puritan shot three people. Srinivas Kuchibotlat died of his injuries.
9: As he entered the patio, he fired at least eight shots from his gun at close range at Srinivas and loke.
7: The state laid out details of the February 22, 2017, shooting
9: for the judge. Lab testing confirmed that the firearm used, excuse me, found in the defendant's home was the one that was used at Austin's Bar and Grill to shoot Srinivas
11: Aloke, and Ian.
7: Sreenivas' widow was not in the courtroom this afternoon. She sent a statement that was read to the media.
11: Today's guilty verdict in the murder of my husband will not bring back my Srinu. But it will send a strong message that hate is never acceptable. We must understand and love one another.
7: Puritan also faces federal hate crime charges. This plea deal does not affect that case. Now, Puritan's sentencing is scheduled for May 4th. Reporting live in Olathe, Lisa Benson, 41 Action News.
12: This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there is no enemy but peace. Amen.
3: our
6: Nobody wants to acknowledge it because it is an uncomfortable reminder of the nation's racial reality, a glaring truth that does not reflect the melting pot we're all in this together American narrative. But two weeks ago, the Parkland, Florida school shooting put the mirror in front of us. The tragic loss of 17 lives at Marjorie Stonem Douglas High School revived the gun control controversy and with it underscored the ongoing discourse about whose lives matter. This observation not from the members of the Black Lives Matter movement, but from the NRA's Dana Lesch, a fierce and rabid defender of the positions of the gun rights group. Lesh spoke at the conservative CPAC conference just days after the shell-shocked students began burying their friends and advocating for changes to gun laws in the Florida legislature and Washington, D.C. Lesh aimed her barbed comments at the media, saying crying white mothers are ratings gold to you. And to make sure that everybody got her point, she added, notice I said crying white mothers because there are thousands of grieving black mothers in Chicago every weekend and you don't see town halls for them, do you? Put aside Lesch's cynical rabble-rousing, the fact is those white mothers of the kids in Florida inspire the communal emotional connection that the mothers of black kids and others simply don't. It's what Harvard anthropology researcher Jason Silverstein called the black empathy gap. Five years ago, he wrote about a study which involved participants looking at videos of black and white people who were administered painful stimuli. The white and even some of the black people reviewing the pictures assume the black study subjects didn't feel as much pain as the whites. Not hard to understand, then, why there is more attention, more sympathy, more response when whites are grieving. Nobody knows that better than Black Lives Matter, whose mission is to affirm the value of non-white lives. Their effort has often been misconstrued to mean that only Black Lives Matter. In fact, it is an affirmative statement that black lives do matter at a time when other lives seem always to matter more. Princeton's Eddie Glau Jr. noted it took a certain kind of people to die to get this conversation on the table. The irony is that the student population at Stoneham Douglas High School is one of the most diverse in the nation. We mourned and honored 15-year-old Peter Wang, a member of the junior ROTC, Wang was buried with his Medal of Heroism awarded by the U.S. Army in recognition of his brave act, holding the door open, taking bullets, allowing other students to escape. But the prominent faces of the Florida student activists are white kids, and the grieving dads pressing President Trump for answers are white dads. And with them out front, the students' campaign for reform seems to be forcing immediate corporate and community response. I hope they can realize their long-term goals. I believe they are the warriors of the light, so described by media mogul Oprah Winfrey. But sadly, I know that the racial reality is still much as it was when the a cappella group Sweet Honey and the Rock first sang these poignant lyrics 30 years ago. Until the killing of black men, black mother's sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's sons, We who believe in freedom shall not rest. We who believe in freedom shall not rest until it comes. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. The
12: the controlled press, the white press, inflames
13: the white public against Negroes.
14: This is the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stasho. Soon after our country's latest high school shooting, there were reports that the accused shooter had ties to a white supremacist group. Those reports were false. The misreporting served to publicize the white supremacist group. This is just one in a series of missteps that journalists have made when covering white supremacists and neo Nazis in the United States. The latest episode of WNYC's On the Media examines how reporters cover these groups and how they could do better. Jesse Brenneman is the producer for On the Media. Lois Beckett is senior reporter for The Guardian U.S. She hosted that episode. Jesse and Lois, welcome to The State of Things.
15: Hi. Thanks for having us.
14: Lois, let me start with you. Uh, You're a political reporter who's had to cover white nationalist rallies for the past year. Uh, What's been your experience in, in, in taking these assignments?
15: I think one of the first things that you realize as a reporter covering white supremacist groups is how eager they are for media coverage, how much they're willing to make your job easy, and how they view any coverage, even coverage that might strike most readers as negative, as a tremendous victory. And leaders will stay straight out. You know, I don't care how how critical you are of uh, my beliefs in an article. Uh, we're going to be using the press attention to recruit new members. And it's incredibly sobering. And I think all reporters on this beat really realize um, how much these groups, you know, want media coverage and and think that they're winning as long as they're being covered uh, and that you definitely have to take that into account with everything that you.
14: How do you take that into account? Do you mean you don't cover them?
15: I think this is a uh, the great debate, and it 's not easy. Um, I think one thing that experts who have written about white supremacist groups say is that news outlets should be more willing to use strategic silence or to choose not to cover things to think about um, what makes a story newsworthy and, and not just interesting because there is the elevated danger of this kind of reporting um, but reporters also wrestle with the fact that you know if there are uh, fascist groups with um, violent agendas that are organizing in this country, you do want to cover them, um, and you do want to cover the impact that they're having. Uh, so a lot of the question is, what does it mean to cover these groups accurately, and who do you need to consult, and, and what, what, sto- what stories whose voices are most important in trying to capture what is actually going on? Well,
14: so, Jesse, let's, let's pull that apart a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to be the reporter who, uh, after some neo-Nazi group, has committed a h- horrific atrocity against human life, say, oh yeah, I've known about those guys for years. I just didn't want to publicize them. I, I don't want to be that reporter.
9: Right. And and that's it it's as Lois said, you know, I think I've been really, really turning this over since the show aired, particularly, because we do raise some questions that don't have clean answers. And I think it's it's really uncomfortable to live with that reality, but I think it's one that reporters do have to live with, which is that sometimes your reporting will serve a purpose you don't want it to and and there's just there's no way entirely around that. And, and I think what I've been thinking about is the fact that that just has to go into the balance when you think about this story you write. The same way, ideally, when you write any story, you think about that balance. And you, you say, all right, I, I know this might be used as propaganda. I know this might get posted on 4chan or Gab or wherever, and it might get made fun of, and I know it might give some glory to these groups, even as much as I might try not to. So knowing all that... What am I doing in my story now that really, really feels important and how can I zero in on that so that I can say, you know, this might be used against the purpose I want it to, but it's really important for me, I think, to get this point to these people. And I I just think about as a reporter carrying both those ideas in your mind so that you say, God, this is a risk. But it's a risk that I think is worth it in this moment. And I'm going to make that clear to readers or listeners.
14: And as as you suggest and as Lois just said, being selective about which stories you cover and then how much context you put them in seems to me can, can relieve a lot of that. You have uh, Vegas Tenold, or Tenold, who is a Norwegian reporter, and he wrote a book about white nationalism. And here's his critique and maybe a, a little idea about how we might go through this. The Klan will put some flyers on some cars in a parking lot in Raleigh, North Carolina, and all of a sudden, like, all the journalists go there. And, you know, that's well and good. If the Klan is marching in the street, we should talk about it. But we need to talk about the bigger issue, about how what they say and what they believe has made its way into the mainstream. We can't just sort of fear-monger that, oh, the Klan is marching again. Uh, Yes, they are, but we also have this more potent form of nationalism so that's a clip from the latest episode of On the Media. The episode centers on how reporters cover white supremacists. That was Vegas Tenold, who is a Norwegian reporter who also wrote a book about white nationalism. So Lois, talk about this, how we pick and choose which rallies we cover, because it seems to me that every rally is kind of an event in an episode that might be glamorous to cover but may not have much context, versus that... a profile of a, of a nationalist group that needs to be understood about in our, in our midst, Right.
15: Absolutely. And I think the point that Vegas is making is just to acknowledge that neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups are attempting to weaponize media coverage. Getting covered is a crucial part of what makes them politically relevant, because these are not groups that are particularly large. These are not groups that hold any political office. So that their ability to stage colorful confrontations is a huge part of what um, gives them any kind of power at all. Um, So. Some experts who cover this argue that local events should only be covered by local papers, that you don't have to, every rally that happens, it doesn't have to be a national media event. Maybe it's best to be covered locally. The other uh, tactic that's really important is for journalists to choose which groups they're going to cover. ProPublica, the investigative reporting outlet, has spent a lot of time investigating Adam Waffen, which is a white supremacist group that doesn't have a lot of leaders who are talking to the media. This is not Richard Spencer. These are not people that you've heard of, but their members have been linked to to multiple murders over the past couple of months. And so there's that decision to say, don't just go with the group that's easiest to cover, whose you know, leader is showing up in a blazer in a public place and saying, interview me about white nationalism. Think about where uh, racist extremists are having the most impact and where your ability to publicize them might actually change uh, the way they're being treated and might flag groups that are not getting enough scrutiny from law enforcement, for instance, which two groups that that this uh, ProPublica investigation have covered, um, that's the case.
14: Well, when you talk about the, the, even those mediagenic leaders of these groups who get some of the coverage, even that draws some criticism. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, let's talk about the uh, uh, you know the Mother Jones piece that was originally titled Meet the Dapper White Nationalist, Who Wins Even If Trump Loses. Uh, the The writer of that piece, Josh Harkinson, excoriated... For, for somehow whitewashing, sanitizing and normalizing uh, white supremacy, on the other hand, he's trying to tell us that it isn't the stereotype that you thought. It seems to me he's caught in a bind there, right? If we don't want to stereotype racist as being you know, somehow draped in a Confederate flag and missing a tooth, then perhaps we need to say they could possibly live next door to you, which might make them normal.
15: Well, I think this is a real um, moment in which um, the lack of diversity in American media seems to have actually shaped the coverage, because there are a lot of Americans that you could talk to who don't have a stereotype of a racist just being someone from the South or someone draped in a Confederate flag, because there's, um, they're Americans of color and they have faced racism everywhere in their life, including in New York City, including in California. And so I think when we ask, oh, well, don't we have to uh, you know, confront the stereotypes about who racist extremists are, whose stereotypes are we talking Talking about, and I think that's one of the you know the reasons this reporting is so challenging, is it's faced so much criticism. Is there are a lot of assumptions packed into that about um, you know what audiences believe and and who readers are, uh, and you know the critics have said you know if there were more Americans of color in newsrooms, or if newsrooms had been thinking more about their audiences who are people of color, then they might have asked different questions. It might not have been like, wow, can you believe someone with an education is racist? Like you need to realize that this exists, and it might have been instead, you know, said, we take that for granted. Like, that's something that many people Mm -hmm. know. Okay, maybe a better question is, let's put the people on camera, let's focus the story on the Americans impacted by this. Let's ask the question of just how dangerous these groups are. Um, Let's give less airtime or less attention um, to their sort of bizarre, twisted racist beliefs, and more to the fear uh, and the suffering of Americans who are having to deal with it.
14: And allow the diversity of the individuals that you bring on to speak for itself. In other words, if you thought, if you happen to think that there is only one, that racism looks like one thing, here's somebody else. Uh, But I won't highlight that. I'm not going to focus on their appearance. I'm going to talk about what it is they do, who it is they hurt, and how they get hurt
15: yeah I think one thing that is a thread through a lot of the coverage that's gotten the most criticism is these are articles or profiles of white nationalists that tried to let their extreme ideas speak for themselves and didn't include voices of people saying, "Here is how this hurts me, this is why this is scary. Let me explain the impact to you and I think uh, you know a lot of us and, and to some extent I saw this in my own reporting, wanted to believe just saying someone's a holocaust denier you know isn't that enough to explain how dangerous they are and I think there's a real question that, that maybe that doesn't actually go far enough maybe that does that doesn't really help readers understand the full impact of these groups, maybe it's a cop-out and it lets people say, like, oh, how could anyone believe that, rather than saying, no, we're going to measure exactly how damaging these beliefs are, even if they're held by a, a tiny fringe of people.
14: And Jesse, there is a way to do this without offering your own opinion as the reporter, and that is, as Lois suggests, to bring in other voices who will tell you quite clearly what harm and what damage this kind of philosophy does.
9: Right, and and I think I would add to what Lois is saying that to kind of come back to where you started things, you know, these are people who you have to assume. Uh, I, I, the way that Ellie Reeve put it to us, she's a reporter for Vice. She said, you know, in many cases, these are people who have been honing the same argument for decades, uh, you know, f- since they be, first became radicalized as white supremacists or white nationalists or whatever you want to call it. So they are very good at saying the thing in the way that they think it will be most palatable. And so I think when you read some of these stories that only speak. To the, to the figure to Richard Spencer to, to their supporters, they know what the best PR speak is going to be. The same way they kind of know how to troll online, they know how to change the tack slightly and say, "Well, no, is this is just a matter of, you know, blank, blank, blank." I actually had I'm from Montana. I'm from the town where um near where Richard Spencer moved to, and coincidentally, I ran into a friend last year who said that he rode the chairlift with Richard Spencer at the ski hill nearby. And that Richard Spencer started talking to him about, well, you know, I'm a big fan of heritage and I'm a big fan of our culture. And, and he didn't know who Richard Spencer was at that point, but he said that he framed a lot of these things in very unobjectionable terms. And it wasn't until he went home and then Googled that guy I rode the chairlift with and he said, oh, I see what you were actually saying. But of course, he's not going to pitch it that way.
7: What to give you, blood? Three months, man. What you doing in here Anyway. You ought to be home with your mama. How old are you, boy? Thirteen. Thirteen?
16: Damn. The bastards must be running out of niggas to arrest.
17: An update on the Kansas man who was wrongfully imprisoned for 23 years. Uh, His name is Lamont McIntyre, and he was in prison for 23 years. He was recently, in October, exonerated uh, on double murder charges. He sat down with CBS. And two things kind of really came to light about this. One, just the facts of his trial, which at his trial in 1994 when he was 17, there was no physical evidence or motive presented. Worse, and this is kind of what is crystallizing now, according to McIntyre's current lawyers, lead police detective Roger Golubsky built the case by threatening witnesses. There are about a dozen people behind bars whose cases are connected to Detective Golubsky. And uh, a senior member of the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation announced that he is going to look into uh, those past behaviors and is launching a more formal inquiry. So that's one part about it. And the idea that there are multiple people who are still sitting behind bars who might be suffering the exact same fate that uh, Lamont suffered for 23 years. The other aspect of it is that he lives in Kansas. And Kansas is one of the few states in America that does not compensate you if it is found that you were wrongfully imprisoned. Um, according to the Innocence Project, the federal government, the District of Columbia, and 32 states have compensation statutes of some form. The following 18 states do not, and then they list them, Alaska, Arizona. Um, you can see if your state falls into that category. Below. But that is about it's almost one in, that's almost twenty percent of the states actually. So it's not that small of a number. Uh no, wait, that's forty percent almost? Jeez. That's a lot of states.
12: Yeah. So um he was in prison for longer than he was out of prison. So he put him in prison when he was seventeen, he served twenty-three years. Now he's forty-one, finally gets out. Uh first, let's just rewind and uh, talk about how uh Miserable the case against them was. It's, and you see this stuff, and it is amazing that people get life sentences. Sometimes they get the death penalty, on the flimsiest evidence. He got two life sentences for so somebody went and killed two guys that were sitting in a car. Okay, um, so why do they think it was Lamont McIntyre? Well, they had one witness uh, that said, uh, I, "I think it's a guy from the uh, with the name Lamont." Okay, so and they're like. And she points this Lamont McIntyre out. Okay, well, you say, all right, that's something, right? Uh, And then they get a second witness uh, to back up the first witness, who it turns out later said, no, Golubsky made me say that. He threatened me and forced me to say it. It isn't him. It isn't him. I made it up. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Go ahead and stay in prison for two decades anyway, okay? Uh, In the trial, as Brett pointed out, no gun, no motive, no physical evidence, turns out Lamont McIntyre doesn't even know these guys. And they presented no evidence that he knows these guys. So without knowing these guys, he just up and shot them for no reason at all. And one of the witnesses we know made up the story, so-called witnesses. And then there was, the police at the time could not present any evidence in the trial that they even bothered to look for evidence that they bothered to look for the gun, or motive, or physical evidence of any sort. On this, they gave him two life sentences. It's, it's amazing what happens he's in America. he's 17. He's a 17-year-old. And he was a 17-year-old, and of course, they waited till he was 18 and tried him as an adult so they can give him life sentences. So and it, another amazing part of the story is, one of the guys who was shot was around the same age as Lamont was, he was a young guy, right? And his mom joined Lamont's mom in fighting for Lamont's innocence and to get him out for these last 20 years. From the beginning, she's like, it's not him. It's definitely not him. Why are we putting him in prison? That doesn't help my son. That doesn't help justice. She refused to even go see her son's burial place until she got justice for Lamont McIntyre, which is amazing. Which leads me to my other point. When you do gross injustices like this, you never get the actual guy. you never get the person who actually did the killings, who I would like to bring to justice and it 's out of laziness and corruption and all this stuff, so which then leads to why did they this took eight years and and they' have wonderful people, wonderful work on it
17: Venus's project yeah.
12: yeah and and a lot and a couple of different groups worked on this and and so why, in the middle of hearing back in October, did the prosecutor come out and go, uh, never mind, uh, he's free to go, we changed our minds. I'll tell you why. Okay, so one of the charges was, as they were relitigating this basically to try to get him off, was that not only did the cop do something wrong, but that prosecutor Tara Moorhead, who's now a prosecutor in the US Attorney's Office in Kansas, had also done something wrong. And one of the things she did wrong was that she did not reveal what apparently was a romantic relationship with the judge in the case. And the judge in that case was J. Dexter Burdett, who was scheduled to testify, because he was forced to, in this case. And before he was gonna come out and testify, the prosecutor's like, oh, never mind, never mind, you're free to go. Okay, off you go. Our bad. Sorry, did we keep you in prison for 23 years? Didn't mean to do that. In other words, the judge was going to get embarrassed and never disclose the relationship he had with the prosecutor and hence did not treat Lamont McIntyre fairly. And and so and by the way, I would like to have justice on that as well. And then on top of everything else, they're like, Nope, sorry, not gonna give you a goddamn thing. We robbed you of your life and did it in the most grotesquely unfair way. Who cares? You get nothing.
17: To put in perspective, the compensation that's kind of the standard, uh, statutes, according to the Innocence Project, should include either a fixed sum or a range of recovery for each year spent in prison. President George W. Bush actually endorsed Congress's recommended amount of up to $50,000 per year with an additional $50,000 for each year spent on death row, um, adjusted for inflation. That's $63,000. Texas um, is even a more robust compensation framework. Uh, compensating wrongfully convicted $80,000 per year and an annuity set at the same amount. And essentially compensating you for what was taken. Because if you if you are convicted of a crime you did commit, we'd take away your freedom. Well, if we take away your freedom, what do we give back when you get out? The only thing that you can really look for is money. And if he was imprisoned in Texas instead of Kansas, they would have given him $1.84 million for the time he spent behind bars. <laughs> There's a weird way to look at it, cause it's yeah. like monetary compensation, but like it's something. It makes sense. We you know, you drink hot coffee that doesn't have a label on it, you get millions of dollars. If someone takes away your your freedom for 23 years, I don't know. Yeah,
12: it's look, it's the least we can do. We need that perfect hair. Yeah. Who exactly are you, man?
18: What's going on? All you do is ask me What the
16: hell I am Who I'm with What I'm
19: buying What is that Like a motherfucking cop Man This is bullshit man I'm free I'm free Let me be free I want
0: to be a cop And now we turn our attention to, the, to a story about the NYPD Which broke yesterday According to an investigation By BuzzFeed News Internal NYPD reports Show that Cops who, quote, lied, cheated, stole, or assaulted New York City residents between 2011 and 2015, among other fireable offenses, including sexual harassment or unnecessarily firing their weapons, kept their jobs under a program called dismissal probation. Those findings come from leaked internal NYPD files. With me now are the two reporters who broke the story, Mike Hayes and Kendall Taggart. The investigation is called Secret NYPD Files. Officers can lie and brutally beat people and still keep their jobs. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Matt. Uh, Mike. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks Thanks for having having us. us. So I think a lot of people listening might be thinking from that introduction, it's no news that police officers get to keep their jobs even if they act egregiously. All you have to do is look at the outcome of trials that have made national news and sparked the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, What you dove into is the internal bureaucratic system that makes it possible for police officers to admit to wrongdoing, still keep their jobs, and keep their offenses secret from the public even as they wield power over the public. So, Mike, let's start with you. What exactly is dismissal probation?
5: So dismissal probation is this obscure penalty that the NYPD uses, um, basically telling an officer, you've been fired, you've done something serious enough to lose your job, but what we're going to do is we're going to hold off on, quote, dismissing you from the force for a year, give you a chance to clean up your act, get back into form, and prove that you can function as an NYPD officer.
0: And Kendall, give us a range of the sorts of offenses that you uncovered that resulted in dismissal probation.
20: Sure. I think one officer who immediately comes to mind is Raymond Marrero, and he was found guilty by the Department of beating a man with his baton for no reason, and then about a year later handcuffed a prisoner And held him down while officers beat him. He lied about it when asked by internal affairs what had happened. He received this penalty, dismissal probation. So there's that on one end. Then we also talked to officers who felt like they got this penalty for being, for questioning department practices and raising concerns about how the police department does its business.
0: So take us through how this works. How exactly does someone who is Guilty of either breaking the law or breaking departmental rules in these ways, end up with probation rather than jail or uh, losing work. You can't actually plead self defense for, like, what one of the people was. Um, wh- 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 well, you give the example. Uh, actually, let's go into this example. Um, Andrew Bailey, found to have been touching a female student on the thigh when uh, patrolling a school. And kissing her on the cheek while she was sitting in his car. Was was this an actual NYPD officer?
20: This is a school safety agent, I believe, who you're referring to, which is in department parlance a little bit different, it's a civilian employee instead of an officer. But, but sure, the someone NYPD. On the force. Uh-huh. Wow!
0: There's
12: your drama. Hold up, Hold up, hold up. Hold up. Stop the
10: motherfucking record. Hang on one second. Take the sound clip. We're not going to go back to the NYPD just yet. I think Cal's listeners are sophisticated enough to pause on that. Take that bit of information that you just heard about the groping resource officer and transition to a completely different clip.
7: Another story now. The shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida has reignited the debate about the role of police in schools. Many, including President Trump, say there should be police or school resource officers inside every school. School based policing is one of the fastest growing areas of law enforcement. NPR's Cheryl Corley reports on how school police officers affect students and school safety.
2: When classes change at Chicago Sullivan High School on the city's far north side, hundreds of students pour into the hallway. Two uniformed police officers keeping watch chat with some students. Principal Chad Adams says the police officers provide a higher level of security for Sullivan and more. The most thing that's important for this school, and I think any school in this country, especially in, in the plight of what's happened in Florida, is relationships.
4: It's these school officers that I am lucky enough to have at my school build relationships with kids.
2: To be clear, school resource officers, or SROs, are sworn police officers and not security guards. Mac Hardy is the operations director for the National Association of School Resource Officers, or NASRO. He says they tell cops they train if they are looking for some sort of cushy job before they retire to look elsewhere. And if they consider getting a school resource officer position a lame assignment, that's not the case.
17: That was a misnomer when I first started. They used to call you kitty cops and and so forth. But our job is so vital. There are thousands of parents that are relying on you to work closely with that school administration and that community to keep that campus safe.
2: There's no official count, but NASRO estimates there are between 14 and 20,000 officers in about 30 percent of the country's schools. Those numbers began to grow after the deadly Columbine high school shooting in 1999, But Mark Schindler, the head of the Justice Policy Institute, says there is no evidence to show that expanding law enforcement by adding SROs results in safer schools.
4: In fact, the data really shows otherwise that this is largely a a failed approach in devoting a very significant amount of resources but not getting the outcome of school safety that we're all looking for.
2: The school in Parkland, Florida, had a school resource officer on duty during the shooting. His response during the attack was roundly criticized and as part of the debate over whether having resource officers makes schools safer. While there are conflicting studies about the effectiveness of police in schools, Schindler says research shows they bring plenty of unintended consequences for students. He says that includes higher rates of suspensions, expulsions, and arrests that funnel kids into the criminal justice system. That's especially true, he says, in schools attended predominantly by students of color. My name is Amina Henderson. Three years ago, Henderson was a senior at a Southside Chicago high school. She was involved in a peace circle after she and another student fought, but she says she felt overwhelmed and walked away from that discussion. Henderson says a school security guard pushed her head, told her to sit down. And she pushed back. A couple of police officers came up to
21: my dean's room and, you know, they handcuffed me. I had
2: my fingerprints taken as well as my uh, mugshots. Henderson says she's still shaken by that event, even though the charges against her, aggravated assault, were dropped. Outside his old high school on Chicago's northwest side, 19-year-old Antonio Magic says if SROs are supposed to build relationships with students, they often don't do a good job of it.
22: The only time I've seen police officers interacting with students is when students were being arrested.
2: Now a college student, Magic says school resource officers arrested him three times at the school, including the time he let a student walk out.
22: Next thing, I'm being slammed up against the table, pinned handcuffs, and I was charged with it's a frame where higher education, resisting arrest, and aggravated battery.
2: His sentence was 18 months of supervision. Now, both students are part of Voice, an activist group lobbying for changes that would allow school districts to use some money designated for school resource officers for school psychologists, social workers, and other strategies. The push continues, though, in some communities to add more police in schools in the hopes of making them safer. Cheryl Corley, NPR News,
0: Chicago.
23: I want you to Pondy Replay drama. Pondy Replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back.
0: Um, Andrew Bailey found to have been touching a female student on the thigh when uh, patrolling a school and kissing her on the cheek while she was sitting in his car. Was was this an actual NYPD officer?
20: This is a school safety agent, I believe, who you're referring to, which is in department parlance a little bit different, a civilian employee instead of an officer. But, but still
0: sure, of the NYPD. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and what happened in Andrew
5: Bailey's case? So just uh, as you uh, read, Brian, that's what he was charged with. And the way it works is when you face charges... Um, at the NYPD uh, you can either plead guilty to the charges and get a penalty like dismissal probation or you can plead not guilty fight the charges and go through what uh, is similar to what happens in civilian court and there can be a trial down at one police plaza uh, where you have a lawyer usually uh, you the officer have a lawyer represented uh, by your union and the department uh Uh, puts up uh, an attorney as well from the department advocate's office and um, go through a legal process which uh, could end up with the charges being dismissed. Or in the case of uh, uh, Andrew Bailey, um, he was found guilty and he was given dismissal probation.
0: So we reached out to the NYPD for a statement in response to your article and – They came back to us with this. I'm just going to read their statement. It says, Dismissal probation is a penalty just short of termination. When an officer is placed on dismissal probation, he or she is always subject to other severe penalties, such as a forfeiture of a substantial number of vacation days. And the statement goes on to say, There are those cases, some of which we have seen in recent months, where the misconduct of an officer clearly warrants immediate termination from the police department. In those cases, no penalty short of termination is considered. We recognize that the police department must have a disciplinary system that is effective, fair, and respects due process. At the same time, we continue to further build public trust that the few police officers who commit acts of misconduct are appropriately sanctioned. so, Mike, is that similar to the statement that you received when you were reporting this story for BuzzFeed? And what do you make of the, the tone of it? They're trying to argue that this is no outrage. Dismissal probation is a severe penalty just short of termination and comes with other things like forfeiture of a substantial number of vacation days. And they're allowed to have gradations, things that are fireable and things that are dismissal
5: probation worthy. Um, well, in reporting the story and talking to the NYPD, they definitely reminded us on a number of occasions that they do regularly terminate officers who commit serious misconduct. Um, their point about um, tacking on a loss of vacation days. Um, yet we've... Uh, seen that as well in the records that we've obtained. We note in the story that Officer Raymond Marrero uh, lost a significant amount of vacation days as well as being put on uh, dismissal probation. Um, but as uh, Kendall was saying earlier, we talked to a lot of officers um, who have faced this penalty and, and feel that um, it's not that se- taken that serious at the department. They don't really know what it is, what they're Doing when they're on probation, so um, yeah, our reporting is a bit at odds with that statement, um, but have heard some of that. Kendall, do you
0: want to add to that? If a officer or other NYPD employee is on dismissal probation, can they be on the streets on patrol as a cop? That can they? Can they carry their weapon? Um, what What is dismissal probation? As you see it, are they kind of exaggerating the seriousness of it in the statement that the NYPD gave to us?
20: So when we sat down for an interview with the NYPD, they told us that um, they actually believe leaving the officer on the street in their same job is really important. It allows them to continue to monitor the officer's behavior. So the idea that the officer gets a severe penalty that really affects their day-to-day job, I think, is at odds with what they've told us previously. There certainly is monitoring, um, but like Mike said, many people said supervisors don't take it that seriously and officers don't really feel like it's a serious consequence. Why
10: haven't
3: you learned
20: anything? This morning, controversy over hate speech is back in the spotlight
18: with officials at this one Florida school district investigating whether one of their teachers has been spreading white nationalist ideology in the classroom. This morning, a teacher at this Florida middle school is coming under fire for secretly hosting a seemingly white nationalist podcast titled Unapologetic.
7: So many other researchers have already looked into this, and that's just the way it is. There are, there are races that have higher IQs than, than others.
18: 25-year-old Diana Volitich is now being investigated by the Citrus County School District. After revelations first reported in the Huffington Post that she appears to sympathize with alt-right ideology apparently bragging about spreading controversial beliefs in her classroom. We only get one side of the narrative, and then we grow up being completely ignorant. Online, a Twitter account linked to her pseudonym, Tiana Dolikov has retweeted pictures of former KKK grand wizard David Duke and pushed racially charged messages, including one that reads, It isn't supremacist or hateful to prefer your own people over others. In a statement, Volatich, who teaches social studies, denies being a white supremacist or a white nationalist, writing that her political beliefs were not injected into her teaching curriculum, saying in part, "I employed political satire and exaggeration mainly to the end of attracting listeners and followers." She adds, "As an adult, my decisions are my own, and my family has nothing whatsoever to do with my social media accounts or my podcast." From them, I humbly ask for forgiveness. And, uh, but the mother of one student says Volitich shared her controversial you know, views in the classroom. Class
5: they were talking about segregation in a civil rights uh, type of capacity, and the teacher somewhat alluded that segregation might possibly be okay, in her opinion. Meredith
18: Blakely's daughter is taught by Volatich. She's upset but hopes the controversy
5: now ignites conversation. It's a good time for us to talk to our kids and get them on the same page knowing that hate's not okay.
18: Crystal River Middle School, where Volatich teaches social studies, is about 90% white. In a statement, the school district says she has been removed from the classroom and the investigation is ongoing. All right. Disturbing. Thanks, Steph.
6: posted on this one, right.
4: Every nigger is a star. Every nigger is a star.
3: I?
8: You and I? And every is a star. calling students dumb and using racial slurs inside his classroom new at 5 action news jacks danielle Avitable is live outside of kernan middle and danielle some parents think the teacher should be fired
19: yeah, a lot of parents that I spoke with were pretty upset that the teacher was suspended and not terminated. And in this investigation report, several students came forward saying their teacher was offensive. Kernan Middle School teacher David Swiner is suspended for 10 days without pay for allegedly using the N-word in his classroom and calling students dumb.
23: No call for that in the classroom or around kids, period.
19: We got our hands on this investigative report into the teacher's allegations. More than 20 students were witnesses. In addition to claims of being aggressive towards students, he also allegedly made comments like, quote, you all should not be dating all these different African-American boys because they are not worth it.
23: There's no place for that in the school system.
19: We went to Swiner's home to get his side of the story. But no one was home. A spokesperson for the school district said he was at school Wednesday, but not in a classroom. And this report also states that Swiner hasn't received progressive discipline in the past. However, I spoke with parents who think there should be a harsher punishment from the school district.
18: They should be fired, of course.
19: And the teacher suspension starts tomorrow. I reached out to the school district to ask why this wasn't grounds for termination. They just reached. They just responded and said that there are steps that need to be followed. To read their full statement, head to our website, ActionNewsJax.com. Reporting live in Golden Glades, Danielle Venable, CBS 47 Action News, Jax. Uh,
10: I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Uh, each successive generation. Uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. It doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country.
14: Two 18-year-old young men have been arrested after a video of racist
12: abuse being shouted at a black woman student was put on social media. Rufaro Chisango, who studies at Nottingham Trent University and who says she was the target of the
14: tirade, recorded it on her phone whilst hiding behind the door of her room in her hall of residence. And a warning, there is racist and offensive language in this report from
12: Jane Deeth.
24: Nottingham Trent has a diverse student population. Yet, at a British university in 2018, a black student is subjected to this. Oh, that's
3: it. That's it.
24: The shocked, frightened person on the receiving end was Rafaru Chisango she tweeted the recording saying i'm fuming words cannot describe how sad this makes me feel mary okpo is a friend she obviously didn't go and approach them because she felt scared um there was a group of people outside her door shouting these um racial slurs everyone's in shock especially the black community here um we are all upset we are standing with Rafaro speaking um to members of the university um, providing her with new accommodation as well um, so they're doing the best that we can so she feels she needs to move accommodation i think so and i think it's for the best as well because obviously in that environment you don't know who's about um, she was the only black girl on her floor as well so that's another reason i feel like she felt a little bit isolated in that situation at 2am on tuesday morning rafaro chisango came down to reception here and told them what had happened to her. She was told someone from the accommodation company would get back to her. They didn't, and the first the university heard about the incident was yesterday. This cannot happen, this sort of behaviour. I have spent time with her, talked through at length with her, and unreservedly apologised for a failure of the university system. Twenty-five percent, a quarter of your students, are from a black or minority ethnic community. They're not going to want to come here having seen this video. I think that our good reputation um, goes before us, and this is one incident. We have 30,000 students here. I think in the last year we've had three incidents of anything remotely like this. The accommodation provider UPP says it doesn't tolerate harassment of students, but admits there were delays dealing with this. The two male students are suspended, and have been questioned by police. And I
23: see so many males, young males in my practice, who have become psychotic, almost never to return to normal, for marijuana use, because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how it's been genetically altered. Again, everything has to be put in the context of a power-dynamic system of racism and white supremacy.
19: The opioid crisis began in rural America, and in the beginning, most of those who were overdosing were white. Since, the crisis has spread to urban areas, and it's now affecting African-American communities in cities across the country, including Washington, D.C. Marisa Peñalosa
11: reports. About a dozen patients sit in the lobby of the Medical Home Development Group, a private clinic specializing in drug addiction. It's on a busy street in northeast Washington, and even on the second floor you hear ambulances go by. Dr. Edwin Chapman says that often they stop right outside.
25: We've had overdoses right under the building, right next door to the building.
2: It's an epidemic. We feel like we have a fire underneath us because African-Americans are dying every day.
11: Dr. Melissa Clark works with Dr. Chapman. According to the Office of the Medical Examiner in Washington, D.C., opioid deaths among black men between the ages of 40 and 69 have soared in recent years. And one of the reasons is fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that is often laced in heroin and other drugs, says Dr. Clark.
2: People who've even been lifelong heroin users are dying because they don't understand how to titrate those doses.
11: That's part of the challenge, she says. And though it's always been hard for addicts to know the strength of street drugs, fentanyl is even more dangerous. Good morning. morning. It's a recent Saturday morning. A crowd of mostly health professionals and a handful of patients gather at Dr. Chapman's clinic to talk about this crisis. He introduces his guests to one another.
25: This is Dr. Vincent Jones. This is Dr. Larry DeNeal.
11: Dr. Chapman has been practicing medicine for close to 40 years years in Washington, and for 12 years he ran the methadone clinic at the D.C. General Hospital.
25: Those patients were very segregated from the rest of the community, and only their substance abuse was treated.
11: That experience taught him many lessons, including the need to address his patients' overall health, not just their addiction, he says.
25: I'm always asked, why do you treat these folks? You know, aren't you
13: afraid?
11: He says he sees drug addiction like any other chronic disease and treats a full load of patients with Suboxone, medication that keeps his patients' relentless cravings in check. Larry Bing is one of his patients. Good
26: morning. I'm 64. I'm an addict. In spite of being on Suboxone and being in therapy, every day ain't a good day for me.
11: Mr. Bing is tall and handsome. He started using when he was 15, and he's tried to quit drugs several times before with methadone, a more conventional treatment offered by the D.C. government. But he relapsed four times. Bing and his wife Evelyn have been married for 22 years.
2: I don't think we as African Americans are getting the best resources.
11: As the opioid crisis spikes in D.C., she says many in her community are desperate for help.
2: I would like to see more Dr. Chapman's drugs off the street, crime stop, more schools, more programs to educate on what drugs do to people. It's
25: going to be what we do at the grassroots level, on the ground, more so than what the federal government Is doing. This is very urgent.
11: He's passionate about his work, and at 71, Dr. Edwin Chapman isn't thinking about retirement. Not when my city is right in the middle of a raging epidemic, he says. Marisa Peñalosa, NPR News, Washington.
10: Context of white supremacy that moron who's always talking about sobriety being best. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 10th, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have suggestions, thoughts observations from your own experiences over the past week, if you have thoughts on any of the audio segments that we just heard. I am certainly interested in hearing thoughts because that is the first time that I've heard reports about black opioid use. If anybody thoughts on that, if we think that that is uh, racist propaganda uh, and them just putting out lies, if you don't think it's true, if we have any black people in the D.C. area, DMV area, if you have thoughts on that, because that's the region that they were talking about specifically certainly would be interested. Dial in the number six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again 641 715 3640. The code 564943 pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Few things before we get to the listeners. First of all, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Uh, you can visit my blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Look in the top right corner. You'll see the PayPal button. Uh, If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email. I will get you a physical mailing address. Certainly check in the flood disrupted everything. So you might want to make sure that you have a current mailing address. Enormous thanks to all the listeners who have invested nine years of broadcasting listener supported counter racist broadcasting. We are only here because folks all over the world, non-white people, victims of racism have supported us. So I hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. And I hope folks uh, listening in have got constructive, accurate information about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what we can do to solve this problem immediately. Also, want to thank folks who have nabbed items from the wish list at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, Huge thanks. Always appreciated. Uh, I think I posted the link on uh, the Facebook page a little while ago. That's also linked on the blog. Uh, Again, hope the broadcast is worthy of all the folks' uh, enormous and consistent uh, generosity. Uh, Other things I wanted to make sure that I touched on. Uh, There is a problem with the iTunes feed. It is not updating for some reason. I think uh, the three most recent Programs are not in the iTunes feed. Uh, I'm going to hopefully see if we can get that corrected uh, shortly uh, so that it won't be an ongoing problem. I think that happened uh, sometime last year in autumn uh, where it happened for a week or so. It didn't update and then uh, the problem was corrected. We will update. But All of the content is available, Black Talk Radio Network and SoundCloud. All of the most recent episodes are there, Workplace Racism. Yesterday's broadcast, our our debut study session on Angie Thomas's The Hate you Give, that is available at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, You can also check SoundCloud. Uh, I posted the links uh, to both sites uh, on the Facebook page and on Twitter. You can drop me an email if you get confused, and I will let people know as that problem is corrected. Uh, We will be here tomorrow. That would be Sunday, March 11th. Uh, We'll be broadcasting normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, way back before the flood. There was a conversation on my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. There was a conversation on my Facebook page about an event in Georgia, the state, and it was going to be at a church. It was organized by a non-white female, and she, the event, I think, was titled Come Meet a Black Person, and it was encouraging whites to come to this event, talk about racism and converse with a black person that they had not met before. Somehow, you know, this would help solve the problem of racism and many of the folks on the facebook page were curious about this and expressing thoughts i said we'll see if we can get the founder of the project to come on the program Uh, after months of delay uh cheryl reynolds she is the founder uh reportedly she'll be with us tomorrow 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific will be a hoot to hear more about the concept of come meet a black person context of white supremacy uh, also uh, i talked a few weeks back about the white ally toolkit that is in the itunes feed it's also at soundcloud uh dr david camp black male uh, ran this project uh, to give whites tips ostensibly on how they can talk to uh, people other whites who reject racism <clears throat> he didn't call them racists uh, and i said that it it reminded me very much of Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. And I was curious if Dr. David Camped Blackmail, if he was in some sort of tragic arrangement. Uh, one of our listeners, one of our investors, Mr. Fox, he's been on the program repeatedly and does uh, just tremendous work posting uh, tons of our content on YouTube. Uh, he investigated and reported back that Dr. David Camped is married to a black female. Thankfully, not in a tragic arrangement Uh, He still gets VGQ. Uh, He said what he said at the workshop, but uh, not married to a white woman, thankfully. And thank you uh, to Mr. Fox for doing additional research. Uh, Next up. I was coming back or actually let me preface it this way. I think Mr. Fuller, sometimes he will say that sometimes specific individuals you get like signals uh, from. The Creator, I've heard Dr. Kanban also talk about the importance of being sober, that that way you can have a better connection with the Creator and just get information, feedback, signals about what you know you should be doing or things that are about to happen. You can be more alert to that. Uh, I was coming back from yoga class this week, and I'm having a grand old time. It's a pleasant evening. We haven't had all that nasty winter weather. It's been almost spring, pretty much every day this week. It's just been increasingly warm and sunny and spring-like. So I'm walking back from yoga. I'm feeling great and, you know, thinking in a constructive manner. And I walk past the flyer, which is not in and of itself anything strange. They have tons of flyers. Any of the major cities that you're in, they have flyers everywhere. So they have flyers all over the place. Uh, But I'm just walking by, and the word Adam Wafen catches my eye as I'm walking and I immediately stop I go back and I look at the flyer I read this is the flyer I have it in hand know your local Nazi Wade Mendisabal, M-E-N-D-I-S-A-B-A-L Wade Mendesable is a member of the Adam Waffen Division, AWD, a violent neo-Nazi group whose members have been connected to murders in California and Florida. Wade has posted AWD propaganda promoting genocide, violence, and praising fascist church shooter Dylan Roof. Should say white supremacist. He has been present, white terrorist. He has been present at recent AWD hate camps in Nevada and Concrete, Washington. Wade has a misfits tattoo on his left forearm. He lives in South Seattle at 11213 84th Avenue, South Seattle, Washington. Wade drives a white Jeep Cherokee. Washington plate BEL 5838 or a red Ford Ranger plate 370XD. X. And they have photographs uh, on the flyer as well. Now, I didn't see tons of these. This is the only one that I saw and I took it down. Uh, Maybe I should put it back up. My intention is to scan it. That way I can share it with you all online so you all can see it uh, and share it with others as well. Once my flash drive was stolen, that's why I have a flash drive on my wish list. So if anyone wants to speed up the process, if I can get a replacement flash drive, that would be grand. But I will scan it Adam Wafin, this group should sound familiar because they were mentioned in the sound clips today when they were talking about how journalists cover white supremacists, and they were mentioned last week. We uh, listened to that ProPublica report, and I believe even the caller in Florida asked about the name uh, of the group last week. But just paying attention, uh, that name wouldn't even have stood out to me if I was not reading the news and paying attention and just being aware, system of white supremacy. Also, I think uh, the people that are doing this are the Antifa folks, uh, anti-fascists, quote-unquote, racist suspects as well, but they're the ones they have websites with this information posted as well. They have some uh, social media streams that have this content uh, posted uh, also. Whites could do a lot if they wanted to snitch on racists. They would not have to just get uh, low-level folks like Mr. Wade I mean they could do this sort of thing all day long worldwide continuing uh, we had a 17 year old right in and she wanted to share her content specifically on the compensatory call in black female this is what she wanted to say Greetings, Mr. Gusty T. I am a young 17-year-old non white female, victim of white supremacy, and would like to share some of the racist encounters I had while I was a student in high school. I am currently not enrolled because I graduated early. Back during my sophomore year of high school, a group of students, two who could be distinctly classified as white, one student who would be classified as non-white. Puerto Rican, quote unquote, and a student whose racial makeup could be questioned but self-identified as a white person decided on most occasions to participate in racially charged anti-black discussions. In one of the conversations a suspected racist white male asked the questionably white female to say something racist and responded to his request by saying the term nigger. At the time of her saying that, my head was down on my desk Pretending not to listen, but after she said the word nigger, I rose up and shook my head. By her reaction, she seemed pretty nervous that a black person heard her saying that term. Knowing how the system of white supremacy is constructed, I knew it was not in my best interest to respond to the white female because if I did, the consequence would lie on me. Soon after, the white male who asked her to say the racist term began to be further condescending by sarcastically asking if she was being racist. I ignored him as usual. Every day, the suspected racist would use the term nigger joyously and would often try to get my attention. Throughout my high school career, I have always had an issue dealing with antagonistic white males who felt the need to watch my every move. I'm still trying to understand where this parasitic hyper focus on me comes from. I could delve deeper into other issues I've had with young white males, but I'd rather not at the moment. Another racist moment in high school is when a white male teacher of mine made a joke during class. I'm kind of jealous that black people don't get burned in the sun, but at least white people don't get sickle cell anemia. That's the joke. They don't... Uh, albino affairs, one. And two, I have to pause for uh, Dorothy Roberts because that is simply not accurate. There are lots, large numbers of whites uh, on the planet, or I'll say a sizable population of whites on the planet who do get sickle cell. Dorothy Roberts talked about this specifically and talked about that as an act of racism when people talk as though black people are the only folks in the universe who get sickle cell that is not scientific. It is not accurate. Act of racism continuing uh racist in front of uh so he tells a racist joke sickle cell anemia in front of a class that is predominantly non-white when he comfortably made this joke i was not shocked because i remember as always we are in a system of white supremacy bravo also a different white male teacher of mine stated that white privilege cannot exist because there are certain white people ...who are on welfare. I know the term privilege is not correct, but a homeless white person still has more autonomy and authority than a black person who is more economically stable. During my junior year of high school, a white female teacher told a student in front of the class that white people cannot be blamed for slavery because they did not know any better. I felt her statement was tacky at best and disgusting. Amen. I really could continue on about the other racist incidents that occurred, but I think it is best to stop here. I apologize if my writing is not very cohesive. Also, uh, Jared Taylor, she has a request if he could get Jared Taylor or an alt-right member on the program. Much obliged. Grand to hear uh, young folks listening to the program. That is great. I hope you're able to share some of your thoughts with some of your classmates. Uh, Just hopefully you can get some of them to be a little less confused and a little more aware of why some of these things are happening, why teachers are making these type of statements uh, in class so that they, too, will not be shocked. And can sounds like she is already working out a splendid counter racist code just on the basis of not being surprised and expecting these sort of tacky racist antics from racist man, racist woman racist child but thank you so much for writing in if we have any other folks if you want to write in your commentary uh, i will share it on the program the last thing i'll say that segment where they were talking about what they call environmental racism uh, white terrorism in alabama we have a lot of listeners in alabama uh the polluting the area where the black people live with the coal ash when they said they were disrupting grave sites medical apartheid harriet washington we've heard that before right Uh, Dana, Ramey, Barry, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. I think that'll probably be coming on the book club at some point. Uh, We've heard that before. Deliberate desecration of black burial sites. We've talked about that over and over and over. Pattern recognition. Uh, For this program, if we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. Uh, One of the tools of racists master deceivers is to use uh, comparisons analogies, similes, metaphors. They will equate two things and insist that they are exact twins. And frequently, that is not the case at all. They are very dissimilar. Uh, This, in my view, it is very, very dangerous. It is a deliberate act of deception. It is designed to cause confusion. Non-white people, we've been exposed to this behavior for a long time, myself included. And... Many of us, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions on some matters, which is fine, but sometimes we don't quite have the logic to articulate what we think. And so we'll substitute and use a metaphor. And often that just adds to the confusion. If we could not use metaphors, just be explicit, direct about what it is that you want to say. That would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that Uh, folks could take about five minutes to share whatever commentary you have. That would be great. Uh, Make sure everybody gets at least one opportunity to speak. If you have additional comments or questions, we will surely have time once everyone has spoken once. If you could use your mute button, if you know you're in a noisy environment. That would also be super appreciated. Uh, Just. Helps preserve the audio quality of the broadcast. And then uh, other folks have the same courtesy where they don't have to worry about, you know, the television or if you're watching Empire reruns. We don't have to have that in the background causing disruption. Much obliged. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code five six four pounds Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, feel free to chime in. Good evening, Gus. Greetings, Thomas in New York.
13: Greetings, sir. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, man, um, Dylan Stormwolf, white supremacist assassin. Um, so I like to add that middle name in there. And, um, in my research of Antifa, they, they're way off my suspect list. Um, the new generation of the white feminists, the white LGBT and the white Jews, um, and they're using black hashtags like Black Lives Matter and Me Too as their, their, um, backing calls. So I, I just don't, um, don't, don't, I don't put them on a the suspect list, um, but you were just um talking about Alabama. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, it was around December the UN uh, went into Alabama and did a report. Had did you see any um reports on that, Gus? No, sir. Oh man, Gus, this was ooh, so I'm just gonna read a little um and this is in Lawrence County, um, Alabama, the home of the real the real home of the Black Panthers. Um, the logo, um the name of the report is UN Poverty Official Touring Alabama's Black Belt. Hey, I haven't seen, this is in quotes, I haven't seen this in the first world. And that's the name of the article. Um, a UN, a United Nations official who tours the globe investigating extreme poverty said Thursday that areas of Alabama's black belt are suffering the most dire sewage disposal crisis of any place he's visited in a developed country. I think it was very uncommon in the first world. This is not a site we normally see. I, this is all in quotes. I have to say, I haven't seen this in the first world. Philip Austin, a UN special rapporteur of extreme poverty and human rights, said on his tour of Butler County community, where raw sewage flows from a home, to expose PVC pipes into open trenches and pits where children play on Thursday, Austin visited community in the Black belts Butler and Lawrenceness County, where residents often fall ill with ailments like E coli and hookworm. a disease of extreme poverty long eradicated in most parts of the United States, in part because they do not live they do not have consistent, reliable access to clean drinking water. That has not been tainted by war, sewage, and other contaminants. Aaron Figpin, an activist who has lived in Fort Deposit for all his 29 years, showed Alston around Lawrence County property, and five members of his extended family, which includes two minor children, an 18-year-old with Down syndrome. They live in a modest home. Their house, like those like many of their neighbors, discharge war, sewage via long, straight pipes, and release fluent above ground, where it sits in fitted seated, seated open air pools. So this is coming up through their grounds. This is coming up through their houses. This is in Lawrence County, Alabama. Um, they have hookworm kids with hookworm in their eyeballs. And you can see it under the skin of their feet or on their arms and their hands. And this, this is white people sewage. Um, uh, I'm not going to keep going. But if you read further down, you see that. This is sewers coming from the white counties that's running under theirs. But being that the pipes are broke, the sewage just seeps through the ground in this black county. And all these people have these diseases and things going on. So now you add that to the ash deposits as well. Um, I just think it's terrible. Um, okay, I'll go to, you know, next thing. I'm American Press Institute. This is their definition of journalism. It's an activity of gathering, assessing, creating, and presenting news and information, also the product of these activities. According to Webster, a collection and editing of news and presentation through media, the public press, the academies, the academic study concerned with the collection and editing of news management and news medium. Um, it goes on to talk about lightning. But um, in that report where the journalists are choosing not to report on all these white terrorist groups all around the country because they, they're saying they're not promoting these groups, that's, that's terrible. That's not journalism. Um, you can't pick and choose what, what you want to report. That you know Now, when they want to report on us, I mean, just think of all the great journalism that they've created in the television shows, the first 48. I mean, that's excellent journalism. Um, cops locked up, locked up abroad. I mean, all great journalism. Don't mind if they're uh, promoting gang activity or whatever is shown in these shows. But when it comes down to hate groups, you you, you don't want to show us that. And I just think that that's terrible. Um, great for shows like this, and uh, other shows on Scotty's network and other channels um, that that do great journalism as opposed to what we get from um, the white stronghold. Just look at Charlottesville. The journalism there was terrible. You had white groups fighting each other in the streets. And all all three news channels, they're showing you the same four or five images because they're not showing you what's really going on. They're not really informing you. You know, you had to wait weeks later to see the white guy shooting at the black guy and all of the stuff that happened. They didn't even report on the two cops that died that day um, covering that whole thing. Um, just terrible journalism. Um, um, the school police. Um, I told you I had to go check out a high school for my kids. And um the employees are members of the NYPD. Um, that is true. Um, but I mean just your belt, your shoes, your jewels, your coats, your jacket, your pockets are empty, you walk through a metal detector after all of that, um, as that all your stuff goes through the conveyor belt and you still get wounded by a police officer, and they're not nice, um, very much like court. I mean, so it's, it's, I think it's social engineering and criminalizing our children. Um, but at the same time, how come they're not doing this to these white schools? Why is it that this school down in all four of the high schools aren't being subjected to this right now um, based off of the fact that they just had a shooting it's just something not right with this whole thing, um, with this whole move to to fix the school problem. And they're not talking about doing this stuff that they do to our kids. And the last thing I wanted to say, the black opioid problem, when I worked at the hospital, I would see it. Uh, the young black kids um, drinking codeine and um, popping Percocet and Lycanids was the number one cause And uh, of the black people. I would see the older black people um you could tell by their skin and their demeanor that they were heavily at it. So I'm mute
10: my line. Thank you. Mm. appreciate that, Thomas in New York. Uh other folks who dialed in. Uh if you have commentary, I hope this is one where people are not thinking they're gonna wait till the end of the program. Yes, I wanna slide in right the last five minutes and got all my notes crisp and well edited to speak. If other folks have commentary, uh let's hear it.
22: have you heard yes sir oh yes yeah. thank you very much sir uh, greetings to us the host uh, listeners and callers um I, I think was that lady's name revealed from the uh person who was doing the podcast from the classroom or something
10: was her uh, like her real name? The teacher uh, Dola, however you pronounce it, was her real name said in the podcast.
22: Yeah, because I was I was thinking like, was it like I think they said it was two different names, right? So I'm thinking that that could be like some uh, maybe some deception going on. I I don't really know, like because I think she was mentioning that uh, maybe it was another teacher overheard her, I guess, teaching in the classroom. And I think she reported it to the principal. So she was, I guess, telling, maybe I think she said this on the podcast, that she was telling the students to act a certain way whenever a teacher comes in and say, uh, well, you know, once the, the principal or the dean comes in, just, just act just normal, like nothing's going on. And if they try to question me on something, know just very, very interesting that if she unapologetic uh why why take all those precautionary measures to try to um continuously deceive people if you if you unapologetic so I mean I'm using that term because I guess that's what what she's trying to go by that's what the title of her show is gonna be um but uh another segment was about the uh, I guess reporting on the the different groups or what they call uh, hate groups. I think it was some like focal pointing going on with the uh, when she was saying well you know you, you shouldn't look you shouldn't look for just people who are having these I guess flags or whatever you should it could or it could be like your next door neighbor or something. Uh, maybe they was going back and forth, not really being clear did did you catch that part of the um that audio segment well, uh I
10: thought the racial focal pointing I felt was happening regardless and racial focal pointing uh that turned just meaning making it seem like uh they're making it seem like the whites who practice white supremacy racism are not all whites it's just like a small group, a small little subset. Uh, I I felt that sentiment throughout the segment in the way that they talked about the, it just, it made it seem like this new quote-unquote dapper set of racists, these are the only racists, not the other whites who voted for Donald Trump and, you know, are in the schools doing all this other terroristic uh, activity. I kind of felt that uh, throughout the the piece, not just when they were talking about whether you report on these group Again, this reporting on the racists as though the racists are just these small little groups, Richard Spencer and Adam Wayfin, and these are the racists, these little groups, and we just have to sit around and figure out whether
22: we report on them or not. Uh, gotcha. Understandable. Because I guess he was mentioning about um, Richard Spencer and saying that he had to review the person and sounded as though he was in shock, like, "Wow, I didn't know this person was like this and but I'm like, how do you how didn't you know that about him if you were writing i guess material for him, or maybe that I think that's what he was saying so uh and then I, I couldn't remember like how it ended something about it being like a small select group of people, and I guess they weren't taking it serious that is. More of a larger problem than it than they're um, reporting that it is, and that's all I have to share for now. And
23: thanks.
10: For sure, appreciate that. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary, feel free. Like I said, if we have uh, folks in the D.C. area who have thoughts on the uh, report on the opioid epidemic in the D.C. area definitely would appreciate uh, commentary there as well uh but other folks who dialed in if we haven't heard from you feel free
16: may i be heard
10: greetings red in nevada
16: hello everyone and hello um thank you for taking my call um
8: the first thing that i want to talk about is a story from the las vegas review journal um it came out today and it's just speaking about um school board meetings, uh, the first article, there's actually two articles, which I found um, interesting. It says, uh, it's titled, when school board meets, all subjects aren't equal. And when I read the title, I guess I was hoping that it might have something to do with racism, white supremacy, of course, it did not. What it did have to deal with was the um, quote unquote, controversial gender diversity scu- student policy and how they have um how this uh the reporter was talking about how there are more attendees at the um, board meetings when it comes to gender diversity rather than um, when it comes to um, Hiring a new superintendent and um, which is something i'm assuming that the uh, Clark county school district, which is the school district for um, southern Nevada if i'm not mistaken, or it might just be for Las Vegas um, that's the name of the school district or that's the district and the one. Uh, paragraph that I did want to point out, it says, in a district that struggles with parent engagement and operates in a state that typically ranked low on public education, that should be a cause for concern. Why are parents turning out in droves for discussion of gender diversity or sex education, as occurred nearly three years ago, but not for meetings on other important topics, which I thought was very interesting, so... You know, it doesn't matter about what your students, what your children are being taught or or not being taught, how they're being treated, um, what have you. All it matters is let's just make sure that, um, and even in the article it says something about making sure that the students are called by the correct pronouns and they're being able to use the correct bath or using the bathrooms that they feel that they want to use for whatever day of the week they feel that they're going to be a male or female, what have you. Um, The other article, it's another one actually, but it's not like connected to the first one. It says uh, CCSD Clark County school district sets, um, March 22nd meeting on its gender, gender diversity policy. Uh, the only paragraph or the only little sentence that I wanted to point out is that, um, and it, and I uh, actually just kind of referenced it from the other article. Um, it just, it, they're talking about a policy where it requires schools to adopt, um, Rules to ensure that students and employees use names and pronouns recorded by a parent or guardian of a student in registration papers, so just it, it's just ridiculous i I don't it's um, it's it, i don't know i don't I'm just gonna just leave it at that um, the other thing I know that uh, I think it was um the female caller h uh, v had asked me about. Um, or ask the question about what would I say to white people who um, comment about how I speak. And I had been, um, when I was thinking about it, when the whole issue came up, um, it was like a, a bunch of questions that I was going to ask the, the white person who wanted to practice that type of racism, but I decided to shorten it. I'm just thinking about what I've learned from, you know, uh, the show or whatever. Um, the only thing that I would say is I'm not looking for um, your validation. I'm kind of debating whether I would say looking for white validation or your validation. Uh, But that's all I wanted to add this week. Um, Thank you for allowing me to share.
10: Appreciate that, Red. Uh, Other folks who have dialed in, if you have a hand up and we've not heard from you, line should be open. Feel free. Have you heard? Uh, On cue. Greetings, HV.
16: (laughs) It absolutely was. That's exactly what I was thinking. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everybody else on the line, the listeners and callers. Um, I, I wanted to mention something, and I hope that this doesn't irritate you, Gus. I just wanted to let you know that you know the other day, uh I guess it was yesterday, for the workplace racism, I'm actually not one of the people who called in late. I stayed on the line for actually an hour. So I just wanted to let you know that I did not uh do that. I'm not blaming you or anything like that. So I said I hope it doesn't, you know, make you upset for me to mention that. I'm just letting you know that I didn't I didn't call in late. Um I had two questions for you. Number one is, is your birthday August fifth? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, I want to know that. And the other thing is, uh, and this is on a much more serious note, I wanted to know if you had any shows, if you had done any shows in the past about just managing anger and managing emotions because the more I see, you know, what's going on, the more angry I get and I noticed that from two things recently made me extremely angry. One of them was, today I saw a report about how um, over 500,000 females were sterilized, young girls, 14 to 49, were sterilized because of a vaccine. And the country was, it was in Kenya or something, and they were manipulated and lied to that it was supposed, that the vaccine was for something else or something like that. And I really believe that um, white people are behind this, and I just know that those girls, the ones when they grow up, not necessarily probably the forty-nine year olds, but the fourteen and you know and up when they grow up, they're gonna be devastated that they're not gonna you know be able to have children. So that you know made me extremely angry. And the other thing was, I was actually listening to uh, the show you did with uh, Mr. Calvin Thomas, and he mentioned how I think his name is Adrian Brody or something, how he kissed Tally Berry. On that uh, award show, I actually never saw that, but when I went back and watched it, I saw she was totally surprised, and she totally didn't want that. But she just—I wouldn't say laughed it off, but she just—I guess you could say she just remained calm. The thing is, white people can do stuff like this to us, and we can't do anything about it. And it seemed that like she—it seemed like she was very well aware of that, and I just felt really sad for her because that was—that was sexual assault, and it's just really it's just really awful that we have to endure stuff like that and we can't do anything about it because, you know, these terrorists. So that's why I wanted to know if, if you did any, any shows about just managing um, just managing anger and emotions um, in this, in this system, because it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating. And uh, that's all I had. And I'll mute my line.
10: Hmm. Uh, appreciate that HV. Uh, it's, there are not, there's not like a program that's like, OK, this is the cow segment on managing anger, but it has been uh, addressed repeatedly uh, within like very specific context. Uh, like we had a sp- very specific program that was about people uh, when people were upset uh, when Troy Davis was executed. Uh, this is back in September of 2011. And lots of people were angry, frustrated, uh, lots of the same emotions that she just mentioned. Uh, with regards to the young girls uh, being sexually terrorized uh, or not all of them were that quote unquote young. Anyway, um, people were frustrated about that. And uh, Mr. Fuller talked about that. Actually we had Mr. Fuller talk about that. We also had Dr. Welsing uh, talk about it within that context. Uh, And I wanted to hear what they had to say specifically, because I think those two individuals have been pretty solid examples of managing Uh, emotions, kind of emotional regulation, emotional counter-racist emotional regulation, uh, where it is human. I think it's normal to be angry, frustrated about black people being mistreated, which you reported. That happens all the time. That's normal. I think Uh, finding ways or number one acknowledging that I think uh, a lot of times we even talked about this yesterday with the hate you give uh, where you feel these emotions and then have to suppress them you can't be angry Halle Berry might have been upset you know with all that she may have wanted to you know punch him or whatever but felt like she couldn't do that either so a lot of times you end up having to suppress our emotions that's you know also part of the victimization so just being honest about our emotions if we're upset i think being able to just be truthful about that accept that it's fine if you're upset if you're whatever if you need to take you know a brief period of time to be angry or what have you but the most important thing uh is making sure that those emotions do not end up uh guiding and having a dominant influence on our decision making process we want to be logical not emotional when we go about making decisions uh, even when you recognize i'm angry uh and this is just rage that i feel i still want to make sure that i direct that rage so that i can function in a counter racist logical manner that's going to produce the best Result Because if I don't, if I'm just going off my emotions and everything, uh, I'll just be frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. That's not going to solve the problem or address why I'm angry. Uh, That's uh, I think Mr. Fuller talked about that a lot there. I think a lot of it, uh, I think, comes down to just not being surprised about these things happening. And I think that's something that is easier to say than the actual process of. Getting to that point, uh, I know Mr. Fuller talked about it a lot on that program specifically with Troy Davis, uh, and he even put it in terms very similar to what you're talking about and saying that the people that were saying that they were angry or frustrated or whatever it was about Troy Davis, that You have huge numbers of black people, situations like what you're talking about that happen every day that don't even get reported. Just understanding that's what white supremacy means. Uh, If you're going to get upset, get upset when you recognize that, that this is going to happen every day. Whatever I'm upset about today, this is going to happen every day, probably again within the next hour until we solve this problem. Direct all of that to until this problem is solved, it's just going to be this every single day. That's kind of boiling, well, I won't say boiling it down, but that's kind of reducing it uh, to its simplest element, but those are some of the programs we've had others that talk about that as well, but that is uh, a very important aspect of racism, white supremacy, and how we respond, getting better about our response, if that makes sense.
16: Yes, sir, thank you, and I just wanted to quickly say to Red that, you know, what you just said about um, not needing the person's validation, that's a great response to I still think the other one was great too, so both of them are awesome and thank you guys uh, for your advice and and telling me about you know the previous shows to go back and and listen to i'm I'm gonna need it because it's it's real frustrating where this makes you want to act out and so that's it and i'll meet my line thanks a lot
10: Mm -hmm. and i think also just understanding too, the system of white supremacy is designed to produce that anger designed to get us to that point that uh, point where we want to quote unquote act out in a way that's not going to be constructive uh, for us that's why I try to invoke that term chimp out uh, one of those white supremacist websites they love it Uh, just we can terrorize them terrorize them terrorize them to get to the point where they can't take it anymore they act out in a manner and then we can terrorize them even more uh, to just process that that is exactly what the system is designed to do Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all if you have a hand up proceed
23: can I be heard Yes, sir. All right. Peace to the callers, to the host, and to the platform. Um, What I wanted to say was kind of going back into the subject of terrorism that we're facing, just like other nations of people are facing on the earth right now. And, you know, it's like we're becoming competent about the matter, But at the same time, it's like if we were going up against or facing directly Islamic state terrorism by those names or whatever, maybe we would have an armed response with justice by now to that particular terrorism. But because the terrorists or the terrorist suspects, racist suspects, racist white supremacists suspects that are around us use Christianity and they have so many people of our people trapped in the mind frame of uh, the God or the creator of the universe is a white man. And so, you know, once again, uh, you know, the terrorism we face is very sophisticated and complex and uh, men will not be allowed to be men until they have an armed just response to the terrorism that they face so that the oppressed women and children uh and the sons who later up grow to be men hopefully uh can have peace. So we're gonna have to deal with the toughest issue in our community, which is the the, the lie or the lies that are told about our creator of the universe. That is our strength and our power against our enemies whether people know that or don't know that and if we debate about it and argue that i think that that'll just be stagnation and our men won't be strong enough to fight uh with justice not going out being a b.i.e what they can you know sweep under the table as b.i.e because it wasn't organized It, it it didn't speak to the whole community or Give our people a way of life after we responded with justice. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh,
10: appreciate that. Sweep under the table is a metaphor. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard at all, uh, if you have commentary that you would like to share, lawn should be open. Proceed.
25: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings. This is Ambondi C. Greetings to you the host, the callers and the listeners. I was going to say as far as being angry, I'm angry all the time. I I don't I don't necessarily like calling into talk show uh talk show um platforms necessarily. I just want to solve this problem. I don't like complaining about this problem. I don't like what's going on, I don't like the sexual access that these albino, ice albino males have to my women. I I don't like the fact that they're murdering us in any capacity. I don't like it, I'm angry about it. The thing that helps me manage my anger, if there's a such thing, you know, under this system, what helps me manage my anger is knowing that I'm doing something towards solving the problem. Even if I haven't figured out what the solution is, I know that I'm doing something to solve the problem. I'm sitting up, I'm writing, I'm playing chess so I can just figure out strategies. I'm reading, I'm doing whatever it takes. I'm talking on these radio shows so that I can at least say what I think might be the solution. Maybe the more that you work towards solving the problem, well, I don't know how how less angry you're going to be until the problem's solved, but uh, then the other thing I was just going to say, yes, we do need an armed response again, heat negatively affects people with albinism. i I don't want to harm albinos that are are not the ice albinos that are not the the white people. I'm just trying to find a solution. Thank you.
10: Appreciate that. And Uh Other folks we have not heard from at all. If you have a hand up and we missed you completely. Uh, number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six, one. If you would like to participate uh, folks that we missed completely.
26: Greetings, Scott Hurt. Greetings, retired firefighter. Yes, sir, and everybody else. Uh yeah, I, I was just uh uh even before the program started, uh uh thinking about the uh the advent of uh how uh when it comes to Black lives, uh, being, uh, murdered and, or mistreated. Uh, I can say specifically, uh, in this area of the world, and I'm sure it's all over the world, actually, that it, uh, does provide less attention, uh, if at all, uh, to, uh, uh, white people and, uh, a, even a strategy, uh, which is not new, uh, is to utilize those whites who venture, uh, and participate with, uh, non-white black people in, uh, with, with with their well they have the at least they have the the idea they say they have the idea in mind is to end the system of racist white supremacy. But uh, nevertheless, uh uh by them also dying, then it brings attention uh a lot more. Uh we can recall uh the event uh back in uh uh with the three quote-unquote, civil rights workers uh, being murdered, Uh, even when they were training, even when they were training, uh, the black organizers understood that by having these whites uh, participate in what they call Freedom Summer, that it would draw attention, especially if one of them were harmed in some sort of way. And you can't get more worse than getting murdered. And uh, that did draw attention. But nevertheless the problem is still here, (laughs) the problem is still here. Uh, And I'm just equating that with uh, the present day situation with uh, 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 guns in this part of the world and how uh, so much attention is being brought to it with the advent of white children getting killed. And uh, That has been my uh, input for this weekend. Thank you.
10: Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, I wanted to make sure I ask again. I know sometimes a tool of white supremacy is to uh, perpetuate uh, just out-and-out lies. uh, And say, oh, yeah, you got tons of crack babies. Uh, That was from years ago. That was the drug narrative that you got tons of these black crack babies and oh my goodness, by the time that they grow up, little Jamal and Tariq, they're just gonna terrorize us all. Oh my goodness. And then they wait fifteen, twenty years and say, Oh man, we we never really had any evidence on that at all. We were just making stuff up left and right and, you know, never was any any threat from crack babies at all. Oh well, acted all those laws and fear-mongering, as they call it, and talk bad about a whole generation of black children based on nothing but racism. And that could be the same thing with the opioid report. That's why I was curious if if we have people that are in the uh, DMV area, as they call it, DC area, uh, to get your thoughts, or other people, do folks think that that's legit? Do people think that that's valid, that you do have an increasing number of black people who are uh, suffering from uh, this, what they call the opioid crisis? So do we think that that's more white supremacist propaganda? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
16: So people who spoke already can
11: speak, Gus?
10: Uh, did we? Oh, well, hang on one second. Uh, Emmy, okay. <laughs> uh, Emmy, feel free.
8: Can I be heard?
10: Yes, ma'am.
21: Um, as far as the an increase in opioid usage in D.C., I really can't confirm or deny specifically whether or not it is opioid um, usage just because if someone was abusing opioids I wouldn't be able to recognize that particular high if I saw it some highs I can recognize um, and I think that one might mimic other ones like I think when you are abusing it I think you um you know maybe might not off and stuff like that but to you know just be clear I actually don't know for sure however in the time that I did spend in DC and when I do go back um, because I live there and I live outside of DC when I go back um, you can see the effect of drug and or alcohol abuse in black people um, out in the streets and not just like on the weekend when someone's got you know someone is drunk for instance Um, there was, I think they might even be changing the name now, a library located walking distance away from the White House. I used to work a block away from the White House, and it was called Martin Luther King Jr. Public Library. And I used to, on my lunch break, walk over there um, if there was a book I wanted or whatever, like, I just needed to get away. Um, and so because it was a public library, a lot of, um, Black people who didn't have homes uh, would be there, um, and and other people too. But I'm talking about black people. Would be there, and when I first moved to moved to DC, I um, didn't know <laughs> uh, much about anything. So anyway, when you would go, you there's like a large crowd of um, black people outside, and when I say large, I mean considerably like you wouldn't expect it to be that many people just literally standing outside of a library but dc is a city city so you know for those of y'all in cities i guess you know you might know that but if you're from a more rural area it might be what are so many people at the library but anyway you would observe i would observe a lot of behaviors um in particular very strange behaviors like uh speaking to themselves or like twirling or like yelling, so I guess psychotic behavior, so maybe there was mental illness, but also drug usage, getting to the point, KQ is what someone like, so I began inquiring, like, well, you know, what's up, and so I learned a lot about the different drugs and what the highs look like, so people could be on boat, people could be on, and I don't know if that's the same as PCP, but um, LSD, and then also K2. Now, the reason I wanted to mention the K2 is because the K2 is something that's kind of like marijuana when you introduce Dr. Welding saying um, that. my experience, um, well, one, when people can't afford weed because now weed's a little bit more expensive, at least to get like good weed, then they smoke K2. And the K2, I don't know if it's still legal and you can still get it because I had never actually seen it. But it looks like weed and people smoke it like weed, but it drives you crazy getting to the point. So what I did see was a lot of that. Now, I also work in a pharmacy. So um, I can say that there that might be a little bit of fluff, only um, because when I'm receiving controlled narcotic prescriptions, I'm receiving them from white people. And my experience of being back in the pharmacy, and even before, I would, black people are rarely even given prescriptions for opioids. Now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't be abusing them by purchasing them on the street, but I'm not really so sure about that. But I can tell you the people who are getting the prescriptions, billing their insurance for the prescriptions, and picking them up on a constant regular basis are white people. White people are on all kinds of drugs on a consistent, regular basis, um, from amphetamine salts to fentanyl patches, I mean, to Dilaudid, Clonazepam, like all of that on a very regular basis, like monthly. They're trying to fill it. It's too soon. They got to wait a day. They come 9 a.m. when the pharmacy opens to get it. So maybe there's, to answer your question, maybe there's some fluff. Maybe it's false reporting. I'm not sure. However, I did witness and observe drug abuse and or just mental illness, but I also think drug abuse because I did see nodding off and stuff like that. Um, And sometimes drug abuse will lead to mental illness in D.C. On a side note, when I was in Baltimore, again, I can't recognize opioid abuse, but at, like, every corner, it it made me cry, because it was, like, at every corner, I had never seen it, people would literally be sitting on benches, nodding, like, literally just nodding, and it wasn't, like, just one person nodding, like, I was crossing the street one time, there's a woman in front of me, and all of a sudden, it looked like she dipped down, like, she lost her leg, come to find out, she just nodded in the middle of the street, and I called her, like, what's up? So, you know, I don't know. Maybe it could be opioids or something else, but there's that. On another note, um, regarding being angry, uh, one thing I think is really constructive, and guys, just let me know whenever my time is at. Um, One thing I think that's constructive is exercising. I talk about this all the time. Um, And really, number one, if you got angry and you feel like you want to act out, To me, I interpret that as I got a bunch of energy and I can work it out in the gym. I can figure out how to work out at home or whatever it is. But exercising will help to keep, move the energy through your body and make it constructive energy rather than it sitting there just being, I got all this energy and I don't know what to do or I'm just, you know what I'm saying? Like, get it out. Um, Gus does yoga. I'm a huge, I love yoga. I'm also just a huge fan of like weightlifting and cardio too. Just because I like that first thing in the morning before I deal with anybody, hit the gym, work it out, situate myself, and then move on. Another thing I think is helpful for processing through just any emotions, whether it's anger or sadness, um, research. And so I know that you know reading's more important than uh, watching TV, but sometimes if we conceptualize a research question, then like like what is it I want to know what is the thing that has me you know other than it being white supremacy what specifically and then spend that time and instead of acting out finding out that might help um and then just another part I think is really important is just acceptance and journaling I think also can help um it is we are where we are and it is what it is and I agree with the the black male that spoke before um you know Let's just figure out how to solve a the problem. Then we ain't got to be so angry. I wanted to say another thing. I am out here in Virginia. Um, and I wanted to make sure I told y'all this because I, I'm, oh, and silence. I'm sorry. Don't forget that. Like complete silence. Um, maybe that's just me, but I find it to be very helpful that sometimes I'm, I'm sensitive. So I'm very influenced by the television or people talking real loud or loud music or whatever. And before I know it, I've taken on those feelings, and that's not really how I feel, but because it's just too much going on, now all of a sudden I got all these feelings. So when I get opportunities to just be quiet and make it quiet in my environment, I do so. If it's hard to do that, get earplugs, like the little foam ones that expand in your ear. It'll cut all that out so you can just be. And sometimes that silence is really helpful. Moving to the story, and one of my attempts to have this silence in my house one day, I... um kept hearing pop, 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 pop. Now, and I've heard this before, but sometimes it just takes me a minute to get it. I'm a victim. And I realized like in the back of my house, because I'm kind of in a rural area. So in a little bit back, they're just shooting guns and shooting different types of guns because the pops change. And this went on for like an hour and some change. Now, that's a lot of ammunition, but that's also a lot of practice. And I just wanted to put that out there. I'm going to make it my intention to report on Virginia, because I think Virginia is one of those leaders in, you know, the Confederacy and whatnot. But yep, in my backyard, I'm sitting there listening to white people shoot guns. It wasn't black people, white people shoot guns. So um, I'll I'll stop here. And then if there's a chance, I'll jump in later to comment on some other stuff. But I thank you all for listening.
10: Appreciate it, Emmy. Uh, Do we have any other folks that we missed completely? Anybody that dialed in with a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Okay, soon we got everyone, at least for the time being. Uh, Please do not wait till the very last moment to get your hand up if you have uh, commentary. Uh, HV, did you have additional commentary you wanted to add?
16: (laughs) Hi, yes. Thank you, Gus. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I wanted to tell Amy and Iman D.C., thank you very much for your advice. And anyone else who has any advice, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Um, I wanted to ask Iman D.C. if he'd be willing to either give his email over the air or if I could uh, get in touch with you, Gus, about getting in touch with him because I had insurance questions. And a question I have for you, Gus, would was would you be willing to do a show on managing emotions? Because I remember at the Ally Toolkit, you talked about how you don't really have a a visceral response and you talked about the different reasons. I think you could even do that show by yourself and it would be extremely constructive and informative like you used to do those other uh, solo shows by yourself. But if you wanted a guest too, that would be great too. But I just wondered if you'd be willing to uh, to do a show like that and then the thing uh, with uh, Iman D.C. And I'm in my
10: uh, Sure. It, it sounds uh, constructive. Uh, it does sound like we've s- said some of these things just broken up. It just hasn't been all together in one mm-hmm. comprehensive uh, program, but I think we have touched on it. Maybe we can even have some sound clips from some of the different programs where different folks have... Uh, talked about this in different settings and and in response to different things that happened, uh, just the importance of uh, emotional control, managing emotions, not ignoring them, just how we manage them as victims, I think is is, uh, critical. So yes, we will see if we can get that done ASAP. And uh, HV, I think maybe you can, I'm a victim. So perhaps if I can make a small request, if you email me, Uh, and just put something in the subject so I know it's you, then I can forward your information to Mr. M. Hundisi.
16: Yes, sir. Thank you.
10: Grand. Uh, We have other folks who had commentary they wanted to make sure they added. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
8: One of the things I did want to add, and actually going back to my favorite topic, um, the uh, sentinel. Um, I don't see at least here. Um, I'm not seeing uh, lots of black people, especially if um, just I guess in the same context as what um, Emmy was talking about, how she would see black people like on the corner um, or you know out um, outside, um, intoxicated. I'm actually seeing more white people intoxicated, and I had this. Because I was driving down, um, like uh, I was driving down the street, and I actually um, uh, drove across um, Las Vegas Boulevard North, and I was going to take a picture because um, I feel like people have this like misconception that the whole Las Vegas Boulevard is just like um, um, just casinos and very wealthy, but Las Vegas Boulevard North is completely different from the south part of it which is where all the casinos and where people usually go but there was um, nothing but literal tents lined up um, down the street and for the most part there were white people and there are plenty of these little um, uh, communes I don't know if that's a okay thing to say but there's a bunch of clusters of tents and I see a bunch of white people and sometimes it kind of it surprises me because at first when you see these white people, you might assume that you, you could probably uh, mistake them for being maybe a less melanated black person because they are that sunburned and maybe even dirty. I'm not sure. But I'm mainly seeing white people who are doing like the nodding off. At, and they are just at so many different corners. I usually don't see too many um black people whether it's you know male or female whatever you know just out walking about that could also be because maybe you know um the metropolitan las Las vegas police department or you know arresting the black people and letting the white people just go off and and do whatever um but the uh, one thing that i did forget to uh, mention about the um the clip on reporting the um the white supremacist groups they used uh the male the white man uh, who was being interviewed he said he referenced he basically said something about um a clean answer and i was kind of confused about that um as far as uh he, i cannot quite remember right right offhand. or i'm sorry i can't remember right now what he was Saying that to the interviewer about a clean answer and even what a clean answer is, um, but that's all I for now. Thank you. Hmm.
10: I think that remark about a quote clean answer, I think that was in the discussion about white people uh, or quote journalists, white journalists reporting about white supremacists, and they were saying that it's a conflict sometimes because you're giving these groups these terrorist groups exposure. Uh, even though that's not what you're ostensibly uh, intending to do in writing the piece. And they were saying that there were questions that came up in response to that and other issues that sometimes there was no, quote, clean answer to. Uh, that was the the context, I think. Uh, were there Other folks that we missed. Oh, I did think it was important. Other if there are other people, uh, we'll get you as well. I just wanted to insert really quick. Uh that segment where they were talking about uh white terrorism in Alabama, what they call environmental racism, where the white company they began filing lawsuits, the SLAP lawsuits. What a violent acronym, the SLAP lawsuits. Uh, saying that, oh, you're defaming us and you're making all these remarks on social media and what have you, so we're going to sue you. Uh, to get you to stop doing that, I could see that being uh, a tactic that is used with increasing frequency uh, against black people. I think the importance of being codified, another great illustration, at least in my view, of why you do not want to be in the business of calling white people racist or white supremacist. Uh, that's why my code, it's admitted white supremacist Tim Wise, because he said so on the program, admitted white supremacist Martin Kevorkian, who should be back on the program this week uh, because he said so on the program. Uh, From whites who have said so, not where you're just going out and I'm just going to call you a racist because, you know, whatever reasoning I'm using. Uh, But also in that segment where they said that a, a result of these slap lawsuits was that the black Alabamans. Uh, They became fearful of even talking about this issue. Racism. I've heard that frequently. I can relate to that a lot where you end up having black people who they said they had hushed tones and little codes where they didn't want to say lawsuit and they didn't want to mention it. I have seen that consistently. Whites, it seems whites are very skilled. They are extraordinarily efficient at even being able to get black people to stop talking about racism, which in my view is a big part of why we haven't solved this problem. You can't solve a problem if you have people not even willing to frankly communicate about the problem. I thought that was extraordinarily important uh, from that segment. Uh, Did other folks have uh, any other comments they wanted to make sure they got in?
26: Uh, uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Retired firefighter. I would say with the uh, with the anger uh, issue, uh, applying uh, yourself uh, perhaps more with uh, uh, involving uh, yourself with uh, with others or some sort of personal projects. It may be growing, growing of uh, food uh, if you have space in your yard. Uh, or, uh, some, some sort of, uh, project of, uh, fixing and repairing, uh, things or, uh, or, uh, 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 in, uh, some sort of organized effort of, of, uh, like this program, uh, where you are sharing and exchanging views. I've, I've found out for about 30 years, uh, uh being in contact with younger people is an excellent way of uh managing uh anger uh because you you see a whole lot of results based on exchanging with young people there there uh it, it's a tendency uh, that i have observed over uh uh decades that uh young people uh, have more of an access of of responding to constructive conversation uh, 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 in a more readily a form that I've noticed in people that are, are, are as old as I am. Uh, they're more pliable to things, uh, in, in, in certain ways. And, uh, and you know, that, that, that curtails anger, uh, (laughs) Mr. Fuller, uh, and, uh, it's It's not in context uh i i I guess he was talking about uh someone who is actually uh in a a non-white person is in a negative situation negative in their in their thought process already to whereas to the level of of not have, having a low level of self-respect he suggests for that non-white person is to go somewhere where a whole lot of white people at if they're angry. In, in that way meaning angry towards other non-white people uh is to go around a whole lot of white people and then that would kind of like uh relax that person uh because they certainly would have an answer to uh uh that type of uh uh issue but uh like i' the main thing is 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 spend some time around young people and that that would kind of like help uh help out with the uh with the anger issue i've i've done it, and it works for me.
10: Great point. It's been my experience. White people generally don't have too much trouble dealing with angry black people. Generally speaking, they got a great code. They have an efficient code for dealing with angry black people. Uh, Other folks uh, have commentary they wanted to get in. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York,
13: yes, um to the, I wanted to say to the it was a lady um, who called in. I know it wasn't read and um I can't remember her name, however, um two letters I, I can't remember the two letters, however, um she was talking H-B. about um h b yes yes, um stabilizing the girls in Kenya, I believe, and it kind of brought me back to um medical apartheid. Because um, weren't they doing that um, with the IUDs? They were putting in the women here in America, um, knowing that they would rust and, and, or something would would eventually um, require them to have to take the uterus out of the young black women. It was a lot of different scenarios of that playing out right here in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, it wasn't even like a long time ago. So... Um, that's still more that happened in the mode of the our worldwide, but it just brought back the the thought that man, that was happening right here. It wasn't even Kenya. Like this was right on down news. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Hmm.
10: Oh, I can't give an update. I think last week when I was talking about the yoga class, where they brought up racism and were saying everybody in the class, including the black people, had uh, privilege. And I said that one of the other individuals in class, uh, I thought racist suspect began crying. She had on a Black Lives Matter T-shirt at the beginning of class. I put, uh, I said that there is some uncertainty uh, with the racist suspect who had on the Black Lives Matter T-shirt. I said, I think she could be a non-white person. I'm not sure I would have to ask. I asked her twice. I ended up bumping into her again, uh, or I ended up seeing her again. This week, and we were talking about racism. I told her I was not pleased about racism being brought up in that class, and we talked about their definition for racism. Uh, Very interesting dialogue, but I asked her twice uh, if she was white because I told her I thought she was white, and she said, No, I am not, but cowbell, I do have a white parent. Uh, And I was still not convinced, even after asking her and her, you know, answering my question, and I asked her again. Uh, she said, no, she is non-white person, white parent. Uh, in my opinion, I I'm not sure she will have to stay on the racist suspect list. That's just my code because I can't make errors like that. Anybody where I'm not sure I think a white per they might be accepted as a person classified as white. You just have to stay as a racist suspect. And I'm not sure she is. She has less melanin than President Obama. However, it is still technically winter. Perhaps if I see her in the summertime when she has her summer color, for people who remember when Crystal Tyler was on the program last year, maybe she that question might have to be revisited by the time we get to July. But at least for right now, she did twice identify as non-white. But for me, she is still going to be identified as a racist suspect. Uh, Did other folks have commentary?
13: Did you ask um, what was her other parent?
10: Uh, I did not, I think she did tell me, uh, like uh, Pacific Islander something, I think she did tell me, uh, I think she volunteered that information, I just uh, was not grabbing, I was not remembering correctly all of the details, but I think she did volunteer that information. It was something non-black, the white parent and then the non-white parent, it was something non-black. Yes, ma'am. Um,
21: I just I wanted to briefly talk about the clip with the journalists. Uh well not with the journalists, the journalists who were uh needing to cover um or debating whether or not they should cover the white supremacist. And I don't know everyone's racial classification and whatnot who were having the conversation, but I suspect racism was being practiced. I think you know, the art of journalism is how you tell the story. And I don't necessarily think that you determine whether or not a story has to be told or not to say, oh, well, if we say it, then it just gives them, like, free advertisement. I think if there's anybody who wants to... uh find out about white supremacist groups, they can easily do that. I don't think that they necessarily need advertisement, although I do understand the importance of exposure. What I disagree with or what I find disturbing is how little the media has covered the violent attacks from you know random groups. I think that's something that should be talked about um, and it's like you know if the school got shot up, we hear about it it's all over the place but if people in the name of particular you know white nationalist groups or uh white supremacist groups are just randomly killing people you know i didn't even realize i think until maybe last week or the week before like how many people are actually dying at the hands of these rogue or individual or smaller white nationalist white supremacist organizations So that's very alarming if we were to calculate the total numbers. You know, I totally understand saying, well, this many people died in Chicago, this many people died in Baltimore and D.C. and whatnot, but this many people this year, this many black people, non-white people this year died by the hands of white supremacy groups. I think having totals of that is important, and that should rally people to be, you know, just more alert. So it was something about the way that they were having that conversation that I felt was extremely deceptive. Also, I was very, um, I don't want to say annoyed, but it was very interesting to hear the conversation on how they talked about that man who had been incarcerated at 17 and spent 23 years of his life. Um, And then to sum it all up, because the judge didn't want to be embarrassed. Um, Like those kinds of things just solidify the time. You know, I think we are in that time that Dr. Welsing kept talking about, um, especially when, you know, controlling the media and propaganda and having certain images, it's, you know, the suburban ghettos or the suburban concentration camps and the new, oh, by the way, I did want to mention this in case there was anybody else out there like myself who thought there had been a new Kerner report that had been issued in 2018. I actually did. That's showing my ignorance, whatever. I'm a victim. I had no idea. So I spent like some time on the internet trying to find the Kerner report of 2018. There is no Kerner report of 2018. It's a book that was written that went and used the Kerner report to conduct their own analysis of what has changed or not changed in the 50 years just in case there was anybody else who was confused like myself but um yeah i just i just wanted to say that um and i just really really think that you know it's important with all of everything to keep that in mind. And I just feel like I should just say it just because when I hear Dr. Welsing and I listen to when she first began speaking and I try to find what she was saying closer to when she passed, that was the point. And I don't think that it contradicts Mr. Fuller's work at all. I don't think, I mean, they didn't kill all the Jews. So it doesn't mean that all of us are gonna have to die, but it doesn't mean that that time isn't here. There's everything in place to make it so. And just keeping that at the forefront, I think is very important, especially if the there are other young people like the 17-year-old female who wrote in. Um, you know, if y'all are hearing this, you know, definitely understand that we are there. I think that we are there. I could be incorrect, but I think there's enough evidence to suggest that we are definitely at that time. So thank you all for
6: listening
10: context of white supremacy. Uh we have less than 30 minutes left in the broadcast. So folks have any uh final thoughts that they would like to share, suggestions questions uh, that you want to get in before we get ready to wrap things up. Again, we will be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Ms. Cheryl Reynolds will be with us, but if you have any other thoughts you want to get in for today, I should go ahead, dial in and or raise your hand. Uh, Press star 61 if you need to raise a hand. The number again, 641 715 3640 The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate Uh, i also thought it was great the incident even that is interesting like which incidents get lots of attention since people have been talking about the media uh These individuals in the classroom do not get labeled as the Richard Spencers, the white supremacists, like the white teacher in Florida, not the one who had the podcast, but the one who was telling his students, uh, don't be dating the niggers. Uh, You shouldn't be dating these uh, nigger children uh, over here and they're dumb and all that. Uh, That didn't get nearly as much attention as the podcast one. And that guy didn't even get uh, fired. As I understand it, he just got suspended. Uh, for some days, that's what they were uh, talking about in the report that they didn't think that that was just uh, for him to be behaving this way in a classroom over a long period of time. Uh, it seems where they said they had over a dozen witnesses, nearly two dozen witnesses who heard him saying these things in class and he wasn't fired. That doesn't get the same type of attention. And they generally work very hard to not identify these individuals as racist. They a lot of times they will not even identify what they did as an act of racism. They will just say that he said something racially Uh, Charged. The only time that they will get comfortable uh, identifying someone as a racist or white supremacist or white nationalist is Richard Spencer, David Duke, Jared Taylor, maybe Donald Trump. And, you know, that kind of depends on whom is doing the talking. Uh, Did other folks have uh, comments that they wanted to get in? Mammy Hurt? Yes, HV.
16: Uh, I want to tell uh, the firefighter, thank you for uh, your advice. I will say I'll definitely um, uh, talk to uh, younger people as far as white people. That would probably be very dangerous for me because they're the very people that I'm angry with, uh, just racist. Um, And um, I wanted to know what people on the line thought about. I don't think I'm a a very good counter-racist soldier at all because I, I actually avoid like the MSN and and Fox and and Washington Post and all these different, you know, major publications because they're written by racists. And um I don't like the the racist the racist spins that they have on the way that they report stuff. So if I happen to catch stuff, I'll like go to maybe you Gus that, that you might you might have written about it on Atlanta Black Star or on your blog or some other publication that is not you know, written by racists, but when you kind of avoid major, major publications and things like that, you could kind of miss stuff. So just people, I guess, being sensitive about that stuff, because they might, in my case, I, I get, you know, sad and angry about the way that things are, are spun. So I guess I want to know what people on the line thought about people who avoid those types of things for those types of reasons, and I guess the risk involved, and uh, I'll mute my line. May I be
8: hurt? Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm so glad she brought this up because um, I, I think Thomas on um, BTR Community he had um, he had posted something about um, paying attention to these alt right uh, websites, and I had basically said along that same thing. But I've actually gotten better with being able to. I actually like to. I don't want to say like, but I do watch Fox more so because. What I what I have done is I have just slowly started to integrate myself into listening to more um, racist things. So I first started off with the more subliminally racist things. So um, where you might have a uh, a professor saying, "Well, you know, white people, we just tend to have a higher IQ." Um, that's not so much of him saying, "Okay, well, black people are subhumans," but in a way, he is, and so that's kind of what I did. So just, just basically starting off very, um, very. Uh, it, I guess you can even watch, like I'm sorry, uh, or maybe watch or listen to um, the. It's the Gussie had just played the segment of those people who. The Young Turks. Yes, you could even listen to them. And I feel like that can slowly start to make you maybe feel more comfortable with listening to some more racist things where you do have white people saying, you know, nigger and all other types of things. So I just, um, I guess that's all I wanted to add. Thank you.
10: Any other folks have
13: comments to HP? Go ahead, Thomas. Oh Yes, yes. I think one of the things you should do, which I did um, in January, was I joined the BTR community, and it kind of lets you um, put articles out there or read articles um, posted by other black people, but, you know, give a little commentary before you read it so you kind of could premise it, you know, in the right frame. Um, So I think that that's one of the things you could do. I personally love... So listen to white people talking very honestly about how they feel. Uh, I hate when they're trying to be deceptive. So I, I listen to the white pop. See, the alt-right is the, if, if what, these are shows and black people that are talking very honestly about, if not just racism, other things that are uh, against the norms of what white society wants us to be talking about right now, which they would probably call a conscious um, a lot of people might call the conscious community. That's what the alt right is for the white people. They got their own conscious community. That's all this is, is young white people that are putting a different spin on the ideas of, you know, their predecessors that came before them. And um, I enjoy their commentary. Um, I listen to hours of their podcasts. I love the people that call in. Just I, I man, sometimes I just fast forward to the end. Let me hear the call. I don't even have to hear what they was talking about during the whole show. It's just, um, it just keeps me focused on these people are the problem and they have to be handled. And I'm be my mind thinking.
26: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, it's, it's a, uh, uh, a a growth sort of uh, uh, project, personal, uh, that, uh, I would say that, uh, all, a lot of, uh, non-white people go, uh, have to go through, uh, there is a, uh, there is some, uh, uh, uh point into studying just how, like Mr. Thomas said, just how white people think you know, what they, what they really, what they really, uh, uh, feel about, uh, uh, their victims. And, uh, you, you go as far as you can go. Uh, and, uh, and each day, you know, keep working at it. I I hope, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the lady didn't think I was talking about, uh, exchanging views with, uh, with quote unquote white children. I'm not sure on what white children are because there's only, uh, you know, a racist man and racist woman. I don't care if it's five years old. Uh, but no, I, I wouldn't waste my time with, uh, with white children, although I have, uh, coached in the same atmosphere with them, but I only stuck to football when it came to that. And, uh, uh, and that was basically from the benefit of the, uh, majority of uh, non-white, non-white uh, black youth that was uh, on that particular team, if there were whites on the team, uh, which was rare in a lot of cases were during the years that I coached. But uh, And it doesn't have to have anything to do with sports either. Uh, you can just go to a library and in the area where you stay, at, in, in most cases in a public library, you would see a lot of young people uh and uh you know doing things such as studying for whatever you know homework assignments they have and in a lot of cases they'll come to you they come to you uh as far as they're concerned because uh i can recall when i was their age and it hasn't really changed uh, uh young people look for direction they also look for conversation uh, uh also and in turn uh the response is one to whereas it occupies your time and it, and it it makes you it it just makes both parties feel feel good uh, feel healthy. I put put it not just feel good, just be feeling good because I'm I'm with M- Mr. Fuller on that. Uh, you know, uh, and and we need to get out of that that whole idea about feeling good and getting to uh, to the point to whereas we are working. Towards solving the problem. Once we have an understanding that there is a problem, and the problem is the greatest problem is racist white supremacy, and we we put devote a lot of our time and energy towards it, then it, I think that in alone in itself would would kind of like cut down the the uh, your well it would build up anyway your your ability to manage your anger. Perhaps even perhaps it even change it around to where it's the anger would actually be become a, a constructive fuel to keep you going <laughs> you know uh, i've even i've even experienced that you know as far as that concern and uh so those those are just some suggestions and i and i'm I'm using it from the standpoint of what i've used uh and i've been uh in trying to involve myself personally in this in the realm of Uh, programs such as this, and also uh, exchanging views and and, uh, working with others, uh, you know, I would say for most of my life. And uh, so those are just some suggestions. Thank you. Uh, Caller at
10: 7656-7656. Did you have commentary you wanted to share?
16: Hello,
1: thank you so much for taking my call. Good evening, everyone. Um, I wanted to respond to the young lady who said um, she didn't watch all the media. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, if we were all great kind of racists, the problem wouldn't have been solved, so you don't have to beat yourself up about if you're good or bad. The thing is, are you constructively, constructively excuse me, working to get the problem solved? Um, if you don't watch those shows, you know, there are lots of... Lots of media that you can read. There, there are a lot of things you probably need to, and not just you, but we need to catch up on anyway, historical books. So even if you don't read those things, there are a lot of other things, that books that you can read, and, yes, they will probably make you more upset because this is a horrible thing. So for I me, mean, it's understandable to be upset, and you don't have to feel bad about being upset. I know people like to do that, especially people go to church, oh, you need to forgive. No, this is a bad situation. Be upset. <laughs> you know, that that's gonna happen. And I know for me sometimes there are some things I can't watch because I work with white people and I'm gonna go take that angle to work. I'm like, well I just need to keep my job these two days, so let me calm down. But um just read things, be constructive. A lot of people gave a lot of good advice about staying healthy, exercising, things like that. Um, but and in time you will find out a lot of people a lot of people around you, if you're around a lot of people, they watch those programs. So you will find out a lot just being around those people. Like personally, I tell my mom what happens on CNN all the time. She doesn't watch that. And personally, I really just watch it for the fights because I know they're lying. I know there's a spin on it. But to me, the fights are funny. So, there you go.
10: Appreciate that, ma'am. Uh, did we miss anybody we have like five minutes left I'm just making sure we didn't miss anybody before we wrap anybody had a hand oh, up yes ma'am hello. yes ma'am I'm
1: sorry I, I went to this is one thing I saw in fact I'm seeing it again with the spin now supposedly the term globalist applied to Jewish people is a racist term I don't know when this happened I don't know why it's a bad thing I saw it I think Don Lemon he was talking he was like well you shouldn't call him globalist that offends them I mean, if they believe in helping Jewish people all around the world, they're globalists. I believe in helping black people all around the world. I guess I'm a globalist, too. I don't know when becoming a globalist was a bad thing, but supposedly now there's a new offense. Mm, that's, uh, <laughs> I would, I, for... I'll see if I can find a clip from Don Lemon so you can see, so you can see what I'm talking about, because I was like, okay. Um,
10: well, I will have to confess, Gus T. I generally do not watch uh, CNN. That's just not an outlet that I, uh, because it is, I, I just feel like sometimes it's entertainment. I feel like I'm not even watching uh, reporting for information. I feel like I'm just watching a, a spectacle. Uh, at times with CNN so I generally try to avoid uh, CNN for the reasons I just outlined but uh, for counter-racist logic uh, for this program specifically anytime there's a new term or someone is using a term to make it sound like an accusation or slander or name calling what do you mean when you say globalist uh, and be specific about it Uh, just yeah when he start throwing words around like that Uh, was anybody else that we missed completely
13: anybody I did want to say one thing, thus, if I can. One thing. Yes. Um, globalists, um, when they use it on the news and the mainstream, that's a cold word. That's their foreign policy. Um, it's also called neoliberalism. or um, Just the way they've always want things. Um, Trump is not a globalist. He's a nationalist. So um, now that they're calling Jews globalists, they're really just picking out a specific group of them. Um that's all I wanted to say. Thank you
10: word masters uh, we globalists, nationalists it's not any sort of, you know, charge anything with Thomas just in the system of white supremacy they will start just throwing terms and terms and terms and you will be stepping back and wait a minute, well, can we get an explicit, consistent definition for these terms and you'll move from CNN to Fox or whoever is doing the talking and using the term you don't get specific definitions you don't get consistent definitions uh, they just use these terms to conduct confuse, confound us, victims of white supremacy. Anybody else have comment they wanted to get in before we conclude?
16: Just wanted to quickly say thanks, everybody, for your advice. And, Mr. Firefighter, I understood what you were saying about speaking to uh, young or non-white people, um, not white people. And, just, I wasn't trying to be nosy with your birthday. I just wanted to say uh, happy birthday when it comes up, because that's the least I could do for this incredible program that you uh, let us be a part of. And I'll be with my life.
10: Hope I am alive this summer. Uh, right on. Uh, we will be here tomorrow at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific uh, Cheryl Reynolds will be with us, black female. Looking forward to that broadcast. Uh, Dr. Martin Kevorkian, admitted white supremacist, should be with us on Wednesday, March 14th. Uh, He's been on the broadcast numerous times. Uh, We will be discussing, if people want to prep and spend some time watching Netflix, Uh, the fourth season of Black Mirror came out while I was flooded out. Uh, and so I sat in temporary spot number one, two, excuse me, temporary spot number two, uh, when Black Mirror number four came out, watched several listeners uh, emailed and said, oh, the new Black Mirror came out, Gus, did you, did you see it? And we talked about that with Dr. Kevorkian before. Uh, most of the same patterns that we discussed before are present in uh, the fourth season, no surprise. A brief addendum uh, on that. The other two films that we're discussing, uh, Suburbicon downsizing both of these films came out at the end of 2017 december of 2017 no less both of these films star matt damon ostensibly they are very dissimilar but i think they're pretty much the same film uh one of them is about people getting very very small in the name of population control and saving the environment the other film uh is just about white people being gangsters in the 1950s and complaining about niggers moving in next door to them um yeah (laughs) that's what those are the two films Suburbicon and Downsizing both starring Matt Damon but it's the same movie anybody who's seen both of them uh or if you take the time to watch both of them it is the same film Uh, I am very curious to ask Dr. Kavorkin about that and just I think it's relevant. Uh, Matt Damon is Jason Bourne from the Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Legacy uh, series. Very different characters in these films. He is not the white supremacy Jason Bourne uh, who can, you know, kill 50 people in less than 60 seconds with a toothpick. If you've seen any of those, not that at all in these films. And I think that's relevant. Anywho, uh, thanks for folks tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. We'll be back in about 24 hours. If you have uh, questions, guest suggestions, again, uh, the archives, SoundCloud up to date. This broadcast will be available on SoundCloud uh, in minutes. It'll be available on Black Talk Radio Network in minutes. And hopefully the iTunes feed will be corrected shortly. Uh, If you have any questions, untiljustice at gmail.com until justice at gmail dot com. Opioids, cannabis, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever it is, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Race soldiers, they have done a lot of damage to black people, non white people worldwide with their poisons, narcotics, uh, I think a major aspect of our counter-racist offensive should be, hey, we are going to preserve our brain computer, uh, make sure that we can think at a high level and produce solutions, new concepts to permanently solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child, individuals classified as white. Certainly, you do not want to be intoxicated behind the wheel and have that be the day that you get stopped by Daniel Holtzclaw, or even your school resource officer, given what we heard today. Uh, You want to be able to make great decisions that might be life-saving decisions for you, anybody else that you have in the vehicle. Also, if you're in a vehicle, you want to be buckled up, driver, or uh, passenger. Uh, Let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
12: Nigga,
25: you so
10: brainwashed.
12: I'm a victim, your brother. Problem.
25: You're a a victim. Uh, I'm up. a victim of 400
23: years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning <laughs> has been conditioned. <laughs>